get your family vehicles ready for summer driving with early Memorial Day deals at Dobbs. Click on GoToDobbs.com for money, saver retire, and service deals today. Dobbs. With 43 locations, real deals are always close by. Time now for the BK and Ferrario podcast. Presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Onto his forehand. What a play! Centers. He scores. Neighbors was in front. Might have hit a Penguins defenseman. Feed from Kapanen. Two on one. Blues the other way. Sod in shooting. Score! Brandon Sod having a Saturday night. There's the horn. Bring out the Zamboni. Great rebound win for the Blues to finish up the homestand. And the Blues skate to a 4-2 victory over the Pittsburgh Penguins. Behind another great performance from the goaltender, Jordan Bennington. Hey, alongside Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendrickson, I'm Brandon Kiley. A much better mood for the show today than it was on Friday. One, because Alex is back. Always good to have our guy Alex Ferrario Thanks, back. buddy. Unfortunately, we're not the mustachios any longer. Well, we cut the mustachios when you shot down my podcast idea. But I thought we were going to do the mustachios and pistachios podcast when we talk about our kids. But apparently Alex has decided that we are no longer the mustachios. Therefore, you can't really do Look, the podcast together. I had to be professional on Friday. Same. <laughs> yeah, I was professional. I was here. And I. Oh, 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 oh this guy's going to talk about being here, is he? I was waiting oh, for oh, I'm so glad you woke up this morning to join us at 11 a.m. Uh, I had to be professional. So the I'm mustache. I'm always going to be here by noon at a minimum. You know that about me. <laughs> I always know that 11.15 will be here for the second segment. Right. The mustache had to go, so I had to do the clean-shaven face. The good news about me is by the time I grow a mustache back, Tanner will get the first hair on his upper lip back. No guarantees to that. All right, that's what Maybe. it sounded like, that audio yeah. courtesy of 101 ESPN. On Saturday night, as the Blues get a really nice victory at home, man. That was a big one. They needed that. And last year around this time, it was a very different conversation. Uh, They had just at that point started their slide that ended up really dooming their season. I remember having the conversation with you, Alex. Doug Armstrong comes out. It's 10 games into the year. He decides, I'm going to talk to the media. And I looked at you. I said, Alex, is this premature? Do you really think that we need to be having this conversation right now? And it was not only not premature. It was was very much necessary at that point (laughs) in the season. Well, on Saturday, you were able to come out and you put an end to any of the conversation about, "Uh uh-oh, here we go again. I don't know what this year's going to be. It it very well could end up going poorly. Like, the the way they've been playing, there's a lot of good. There's also a lot of bad that we can get to. But that type of a performance coming off of a 6-2 loss, it did squash a lot of the talk of, oh, man. Here we go. Just going to be the same old blues this year. Same thing as we saw a year ago. Yeah, absolutely did. Look, I went into that game Saturday following Thursday night's performance. And as soon as I got off the air, I remember telling Grant uh, during a commercial break, I said, well, 
Now I now I need to figure out if what we saw tonight, Thursday against the Coyotes, is the real Blues team, or if what we saw in the first couple of games of the season is the real Blues team. And I think that remains to be seen still. If they would have laid another egg against Pittsburgh on Saturday night, if they would have performed the way that they played against Arizona, where the passing was awful, there was no puck support, no offense, your goaltender looked bad, then I would have sat there and said, okay, this team is still mentally fragile. And this is what Doug Armstrong talked about, right? Making sure that we have the right guys with the right attitude before we continue to build into this new era of Blues hockey. To me, that was an important performance in terms of fixing the problems that you had against Arizona. Now, I don't think Pittsburgh's as good as good of a well-rounded team as Arizona seems to be, at least Man, on the offensive side. It is, but like and you're right. But wow, the, Pittsburgh is a prototypical team. You look at and you say on paper, damn, this is a good team. But all of their forwards are old with the exception of Jake Gensel. They're very slow and defensively. Look, Eric Carlson's your top defenseman with Chris Letang. So you needed to perform this way. But the passing was awful. Craig Bruby said against Thursday, I actually thought their passing was very good against Pittsburgh. They forechecked. There was puck support that Baruby said they did not have against the Arizona Coyotes. And defensively, you stuck to the scheme. You tried to keep things outside. There were a lot of one-and-dones, although some high-danger chances. That was the game last season that you played. You give up six goals against one team, and then the next night you go out and you give up five goals and you lose back-to-back. That was the type of game that could have gone that way, but the Blues found a way to overcome that, and that's a good sign that they avoid the snowball. Yeah, it was a good game from the St. Louis Blues against the Penguins, but I'm still not sure if I'm sold on there's no snowball coming because there are still a lot of underlying metrics offensively that scream that there's going to be a recession coming for the St. Louis Blues and the fact that the power play still hasn't scored a goal in his 0-4 and at 0% one of two teams remaining in the NHL. So though it was a good win and good to see that they avoided the snowball, I'm not going to say today that this team is different from last year and can avoid that. I, I still think there is a potential moment coming for the Blues if the metrics continue to hold up because they're, I don't think they can continuously win this way. And if they can't, they go on a two, three game losing streak, then things are when I'll start to go, okay, how strong is this team mentally? Because it's one thing to say one game loss and then it just snowballs into something. I think two or three game losing streak, that's when you'll find out what this team is made of. Can I tell you why I think this is different than last season? Because of the captain. And JR had a really good piece about it on The Athletic, and I I heard Jake Neighbors talk about it. But Braden Shen, and look, this is no disrespect to Ryan O'Reilly, but I, I think there's a lot of I think there's a lot of respect in that locker room for when Braden Shen speaks. And when you're a captain, when you're making phone calls to guys talking about the next game, when you have as as good of a statement as he did following that Thursday's game and basically interrupted JR and said, I'm done talking about last season. Now we have to make sure that we don't do the same mistake Thursday that we do Saturday. And they backed up that performance. Here's what Craig Berube had to say about their captain. You know, he's, a, he's doing the right things. You know, for me, it's like... You know, I know he's not on the score sheet right now. Um, you know, he's had some opportunities, and I think that um, the scoring will come and and things like that. It always does with him. You know, um, so I'm not I'm not overly worried about it. But it's just this whole game right now, just playing the right way. I think more than anything, like you know, that's what we need from him, uh, night in and night out, and that's what he's given us. I think in Ryan O'Reilly, you had a leader that led by example. I don't think we know that's how he led he was a guy that was going to be on the ice first he was going to leave the ice last he was a guy that was going to go out there and based upon the way that he played you could see oh that's what a leader looks like on the ice 
This is not a shot at Ryan O'Reilly. The guy is a very good leader. I do think, though, there is a difference between guys that lead through losing and guys that are very good leaders when your team is winning. And Ryan O'Reilly was an excellent player, person, human being for a team that was winning. Because you could look to him and say, we got to keep grinding. We got to keep grinding. We got to keep grinding. I think Braden Shin is a very good leader when the team is losing. And the reason why I say that, Alex, is because he's going to say the things in the locker room that need to be said to be able to prevent the dip from lasting as long as it did last year. Braden Shin is not just going to go out there and do it on the ice. He's also going to say some things. He's going to have the uncomfortable conversations. He's also the guy that, for example, when Jake Neighbors comes up to the NHL, he's staying at Braden Shin's house. Braden <laughs> Shin, when Jake Neighbors is called up to his line, he's not just texting him saying, hey, man, congrats on the opportunity. Looking forward to getting this opportunity. He's getting a call, right? He's an old school leader that way. I remember talking um, with some of the guys around the team. Jamie mentioned this on the show a few times during uh, our time doing the show together about how Alex Steen led. Yeah. And it was taking guys out to dinner, going to grab a glass of wine together on the road, just having conversations that needed to be had. Braden Shin is very much cut in that vein. He is an old school through and through player, and that is both on and off the ice. And I think that stuff matters when you've got S hitting the fan. And on Thursday, there was the potential for, oh boy, here we go again. He nipped that thing in the bud immediately. I don't know how it's going to go from here. That doesn't mean that this will be sustainable long term. But I like that we saw at least in the first instance of this being a potential issue, they were able to cut it out from underneath immediately. How many times last season, excuse me, when... A bad game would happen and you'd hear the players in the locker room talk about saying, I don't know, we, we got to be better. We got to be better in certain areas. And then the same area would be just as bad the next game. This season, and T-Bone, you are right. This is one game we're talking about. And to me, Pittsburgh is in a lesser opponent than the Arizona Coyotes. So you were expected to perform this way. But la- this last game, you didn't have guys saying, I don't know, following that Thursday loss. Just... <laughs> Justin Falk said that the passing was pitiful and we didn't skate. Yakub Verana said we didn't touch the puck at all in that game. That locker room was actually very truthful in terms of the outcome of that game. And then Friday, you have the practice where nobody really wanted to sit there and talk about the last season. And then Saturday, you fixed those problems. All of this, though, comes down to one thing. Can you get the win? Because it's great to say all of the right things. It's great to call up Jake Neighbors. That story isn't told if they lose on Saturday. That story ends up just being something that is unwritten by by uh, Jeremy Rutherford. And instead of writing the column about the leadership from Braden Shin, he's writing about how, uh-oh, this might be the same story as a year yeah, ago. Absolutely. we got to get things done on the ice. And the guy that's making that possible is Jordan Bennington, man. Listen. I am the last one that is going to come up here and cape for Jordan Bennington when he's not deserving. Let me pull out my let me pull out my martini and just. Hey, man, just because you were caping for him while the guy was allowing 17 goals on average. I stick to my guys. Anybody can have a puck in them. I want to give him all of the credit in the world, because if we're being totally truthful, the performance on Saturday, Saturday wasn't all that dissimilar from the performance on Thursday. Now, there are instances in which it was very different. I think the rush was much better on Saturday night. I think in general, they skated a lot better, but the chances that they gave up weren't all that dissimilar. The difference is Bennington saved them. The difference is when you needed a big save, and we talked about this so much last year, 
when you needed a big save, he was coming up with it. Two years ago, when you needed a big save, Hofer was the one that would come up for it with, with it for you, and you ended up going into the postseason because of that. Last or Saturday night, you saw that from Bennington. First two games, you saw that from Bennington. The reason why you got shellacked against Arizona is because, for whatever reason, you weren't able to get those saves in net. I don't know if that's something that's going to continue with Hofer, but I think that it's something that we should keep our eyes on. Bennington, though, is the opposite. Bennington's been great in his three starts for the Blues so far this year. Yeah, I mean, I I give credit to the defense because they have had success in terms of really keeping things to the outside and making sure that the shots are one-and-done scenarios with some potential breakdowns. But all of this comes back to Jordan Bennington. When you have needed the desperation saves, he has made it, and he has made it calmly for you. I love the comment that he had on, on postgame with, with Curbs and Joey. He They asked him just about his performance, and he said, yeah, that first goal, the Malkin goal, yeah. he said, pretty much knew I was going to be on the highlight reel of embarrassment for that one. But beyond that, I found ways to stay composed. And that was it. Like, Bennington last season, when one goal would get past him, things would kind of unravel. That goal happens... And then he just kind of locks it down from there. And the third period I thought was the biggest moment for him. You were getting peppered with shots. I think it was 10 to 4, 12 to 4 at the end of that third period. And it really felt like it was saved, kicked to the outside, and the the rebound chance was gone. There was nothing in front of Jordan Bennington. That's the type of goaltender that is going to be able to keep games to one goal, maybe two goals for the opposition. Whereas last season when he's given up three, four, five, it's because all of these are underneath the two faceoff dots. What do you expect them? And for anybody that's curious on some of the numbers that are backing up what we're talking about here on Thursday night, you were outshot at five on five, 33 to 20 on Saturday, 30 to 18, pretty similar. You were outchanced on Thursday, 23 to 15. On Saturday, you were outchanced 29 to 18. On Thursday, you actually ended up having more high danger chances at five on five than Arizona. It was seven to six in that regard. On Saturday, you ended up giving up 14 high danger chances. You had 10 of them. So some of the numbers actually were worse for you in terms of the chances that you were giving up on Saturday night than they were against Arizona on Thursday night. What's the difference? Well, on high danger shots on Thursday night, you saved 40% of the chances against you with uh, Hofer and Net. On Saturday, you saved 71% of them. The first two games of the year saved 90% of them. The difference for the Blues so far this season when they're winning versus when they're losing is Jordan Bennington. It's really that simple. You got a nice performance out of Saw. Jake Neighbors played pretty well. Capping a nice game by him. Your guy, Colton Pareko, has been pretty damn great all season long so far. Hold on. But ultimately, this thing comes down to whether or not Jordan Bennington is making the saves that are necessary. We'll get into whether or not this is sustainable oh, coming on. up in the 12 o'clock hour. But so far this year, it's looked pretty darn good with him in net. For Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendrickson, I'm Brandon Kiley. You got BK and Ferrario here on 101 ESPN. We'll be with you guys until 2 o'clock. Coming up in 15 minutes, we'll get to some of the biggest stories in the NFL from the weekend. You guys can get involved. 314-399-9646 is the Air Comfort Service text line. But coming up next... Our Missouri Tigers, Alex Ferrario, Mm. are off to their best start in a decade. The last time they did this, they ended up going to Atlanta for an SEC championship. Is that in play again in 2023? We'll talk about it next year on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN.
says Luther Burden, one of the best in the nation. And number 20, Mizzou, beat the Gamecocks 34-12. Missouri has beaten South Carolina for a fifth consecutive year. Oh, yeah, this is my jam right here. Come on, T-Bone. I don't hear the Illinois fight song going on right now. It's not a lot of fight going on with them. Oh, yeah, that's going to go better for you. This is my jam. I had this on replay Saturday night. I was playing it like it was Rocky Talk. This is why Luca thinks you're boring. Alongside Alex and T-Bone, I'm VK. That audio you just heard was courtesy of SEC Network as the Missouri Tigers beat the hell out of the South Mm. Carolina Gamecocks on Saturday. Just 34-12. Man, this thing was over at the end of the first half. And I think everybody watching knew that it was over. And certainly everybody playing or coaching knew that it was over. Or being there knew it was over. Missouri was up 24-3 at the end of the first half. Alex, my personal favorite stat at the half was that Missouri at that point had 156 rushing yards. Yeah. South Carolina had negative eight at the end of the first half of this football game. They just came out and it was a full on blitzkrieg of South Carolina. They had no chance. This to me between South Carolina in the first half and Kentucky after the first quarter. So basically the the next five quarters of play for Mizzou It told me enough to believe that this team is legit because if you're able to do that against the middle of the SEC East, now I'm not telling you that you should think that South Carolina is great or that Kentucky's great. They're solid teams that don't look this bad against most of the opponents that they go up against for Mizzou to do it against those two tells me they've got a chance to have a special season. I believed that previously, but I think it was more my heart than my head. Now my head is telling me that it's possible. I don't know that this team is worse than what they were in 2013. I think they're pretty comparable. I think they're a little worse than 2007 because that that offense was just all-time great. This team has a chance to be remembered in the ilk of 2013 and 2007. It's going to require a lot. There's still a lot left to be determined here, Alex. But what did you learn about the Missouri Tigers on Saturday in their 34-12 win? That they... That they recognize that they're the better of a lot of these teams in the SEC. Because when you go up against a team like South Carolina, that's the one where you go in confidently thinking, like, we're going to wipe the floor with these guys. It's homecoming week. You got a big crowd in front of you. You're like, we're going to wipe the floor with these guys. And maybe your mind isn't in in it the way it is when you take on a Kentucky team or when you take on LSU. But they still went out there and they wiped the floor with them. And look, we talk so much about the offense. You know, Brady Cook is dominant along with Luther Bird and the receivers. The part that got me, and if I hope I'm not mistaken with this, South Carolina came into that game with a very good run defense solid. team. They were very bad against the pass, but really solid against the run. And basically, Eli Drinkwood said, bleep it, let's do, let's do that so that we can show that we're kind of here. And you get 159 rushing yards and two touchdowns for Schrader. So... To me, I learned about the Missouri Tigers that whatever we feel their weakness is, they find ways to prove us wrong every week. And when you take on Georgia, when you get out of this bye week, that's the one that's going to be tough. I mean, even Drink was talking about it following the game. Like, look, we got to worry about the bye week, and then we'll get into this. But when you take on Georgia, when you take on Tennessee, really that's the next two challenges for this Tigers team. I've recognized that Brady Cook, the passing game, the running game, all of these factors, even defensively holding Def- that team. Dude, their defense has turned a corner. They three points in the first in their last half. two games. Great over the last two. You know that your weaknesses aren't as bad as you thought they were a couple of weeks ago. 
Yeah, and I thought the biggest thing for me was the defense because I, I thought the offense should play a pretty good game against South Carolina. Defensively, I was wondering what they would be able to do to get to Rattler, and they brought I think they brought five-man blitz like the whole game. That was the whole game plan was we're going to rush five, and we think one-on-one we can win those matchups on the O-line. By the way, Rattler was really good against the blitz coming into this He game. looked terrible this week against terrible. the blitz because, I, I mean, they were sending five, it felt like, every time until the second half. Then they started to play back a little bit more. But in the first half, they would rush five, and he had no time in the pocket, and he looked almost like golf-like where he would short-circuit when the blitz showed up so I I thought the defense was really impressive and to your point on the run game I mean guys they could have like drove a truck through some of those holes they were creating those were that was incredible run blocking from that Mizzou offensive line because Schrader had an easy day early on I think it started slow if I remember correctly but then by the time they got going yeah they were creating massive holes and it was just easy to see when you're there at the game and I know people will look back on it out and now and say like hey yeah those are two games that Missouri should have won like that sure fair easy to say but Man, Kentucky's like a three-point underdog next week against Tennessee. Kentucky's a really solid team. They beat Florida by 20. They ran through that Florida Gators defense. South Carolina should have honestly beat Florida. It required like a 20-point comeback at the end for Florida to be able to win that one, and they really beat them uh, through the air. They did beat Mississippi State, who's a really solid team from the SEC West, and they also only lost against Georgia by 10. Like, this is not some bum South Carolina team. They they looked really bad on Saturday, and really they've looked bad a couple of times this season, but this is not a terrible South Carolina opponent. Mizzou made them look terrible, and that's what good teams do. Good teams treat games like this as if it's a business trip. Good teams go into that kind of game and say, let's get up by enough and then put our foot onto the brakes and just say, all right, we've got enough of a, a lead here that we can coast to the finish line. And that's what Missouri did. My immediate reaction, because I had had a few uh, beers on Saturday while I was watching this game. Nice. I'm so mad at Mizzou for the way that they played in that second half. As I got a little further away from from it, though. and Yeah. (laughs) It's 24 hours removed, feeling a little better. um, I was like, man, Missouri just had such a great first half. They didn't even really have to play in the second half. That's how impressive they were in the first. So it... This team's legit, man. This team is legit. T-Bone, I wanted to ask you, because it was your first time going to a Tigers game, right? Yeah. How was your experience in Columbia this weekend? It was the third straight sellout, first time that they've had that at home at Mizzou since 2008. So the atmosphere, I think, is getting a little better out there in Columbia. What was it like on Saturday? It was a good experience out there in Columbia. You know, the the part that kind of sucks is that it was such a shellacking in that first half because then the environment kind of disappeared after that. But in the first half when that game started, it was a really good environment. Clearly sold out stadium there at Mizzou. There was no classic, oh, it's sold out. And then you look and go, nah, I don't think so. But no, the, the seats were packed. It was a great environment. Everybody was ready from the get-go for homecoming. Excited, You could feel the energy around the stadium. But then again, just because it was a bad game, really, and Mizzou dominated, the second half, it just kind of wore out. I was like, ah, oh, man, this just this feels kind of blah. So I, I kind of wish I had a more competitive game. But yeah, it was a great experience. And I'll just Sorry be honest. we had to treat you a, yeah. to a good old ass woman. Yeah. Well, <laughs> it, it was a definitely a better environment than Illinois. And I saw Illinois when they were ranked last year, and I saw Mizzou when they were ranked this year. And I can tell you the Mizzou environment was better. Illinois was like watching bingo. Guess what? It doesn't matter what game you would have picked because every game Mizzou puts an ass kicking on home field. Oh, except yeah. for LSU. That, that, oh, that, that, didn't, Dude, that didn't matter. God, that game pisses me That's off. That's all right. They'll get the revenge. No. They'll get the revenge in the uh, SEC championship game when they win and then go to the uh, college football playoffs. We've got a lot of time between now and then. Suck it, T-Bone. So yeah, we're certainly sure. going to be discussing it a lot more. Missouri has earned our time at this point because of the way that they've performed so far this year. You guys giving them a shot against Georgia? No. On the road, in Athens, next weekend? What are you going to learn, man? No, I'm not giving them a shot against Georgia. You can't spell doubt without Eli. What? 
Only works for belief. So yeah. I wasn't good at spelling when I was growing up. What the hell were you just saying? Can't there? spell drink without doubt. We'll no, get there, buddy. Uh, are either. you giving him a shot? <laughs> I'm absolutely giving him a shot. You take Bowers out of the equation, it gives the defense, I feel, a little bit more of a level playing field. I'd still obviously give the advantage to Georgia when you talk about the talent. But look, when you take on that playmaker, it, it makes it a little bit more evened out for you. And offensively, look, I like Georgia. Georgia's a dangerous team. I can't take that away from them. But I'm not sure that their defense is going to be able to handle all of what Mizzou is handling right now. Give him a 20, 20 to 25% chance. Up, you pessimistic son of a I, I think that's pretty optimistic. I mean, one 40%. in four times that these, guys, these teams play, I think Missouri wins. I think that's pretty impressive because I don't think there's a ton of teams. There's probably 15 teams that I could say that about against Georgia. I think that you, it requires you to have a balanced team. I think that's the way that you beat this Georgia squad is you've got to be able to defensively put the clamps down on them. And offensively, you got to hit some explosive. I think Luther Burden gives you that opportunity. And you got to be able to run the ball pretty consistently to be able to hold on to the football. I think Missouri can do both of those things. What's his face that transferred to, to uh, Georgia? Dominic Lovett. Oh, yeah, a little revenge game against Dom- Dominic Lovett. I think that is a game that Luther Burden is going to have circled because oh, I, yeah. I think Burden wants to show up in a game like this on the national stage. This is why you go to Mizzou. Yeah. Like, if you're Luther Burden, first of all, the fact that they're 7-1 and one in – large part because of your contributions. He was amazing again on Saturday. That touchdown catch, my God. Um, him being able to be at 7-1 and one at Mizzou, that's why you go there. Him being able to play in this game on the road at Georgia and potentially put Mizzou on the map in a way that is nationally relevant, oh, buddy. This is how you get and in the Heisman. And to do it against Dominic Lovett, who was considered to be the quote-unquote better yeah. receiver for Mizzou last year, oh. This that... is how you put yourself in the Heisman conversation. Chef's kiss. A game right. like this. Coming up next... Let's get into some NFL quick hitters. All of our picks were horrendous going into this weekend. One of those picks was Alex going with the Bills against the Patriots. Which loss was more deflating? The Bills at New England or the Lions getting absolutely trounced in Baltimore? We'll get to that next here on 101 ESPN. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Alongside Alex and T-Bone on BK. All right, let's get to some NFL quick hitters. Alex, you had the bills yesterday, so not a great day for you. I wasn't there for that. I think you also had the Lions yesterday. That was me. No, I didn't. I had you. Somebody else had the Lions. I had the Browns. Had the Lions yesterday. Yeah. Thanks for knowing what the the uh, picks were. I had the Dolphins yesterday. I had the Dolphins yesterday. I had the Dolphins yesterday. Oh, so preview for a pick'em <laughs> challenge reveal. <laughs> Let's just say things went uh, not great. As Unless. expected. If you had a parlay of all of the picks that we oh. made, but you took the opposite, you'd be. You made a lot of money over the weekend. <laughs> A lot Seriously, of money. You would have. That's what nine games you well, would have taken. It ended up being like seven picks yeah. total because we all had a couple that were the oh, same. Oh, okay. So yeah, but oh my god, yeah, a seven I'm game. I'm doing parlay. that next week. 
That would have had some pretty nice Fading yourself? I'm fading all three of us. It's fair. All right, so the reason I bring up the Bills and the Lions specifically is because, man, both of them lost, and both of them got embarrassed, honestly, yesterday. The Bills lose 29-25 on the road at New England, a hapless New England team that had no hope going into that game. Now suddenly they feel kind of alive, but let's be honest, they're still dead. The Lions end up going into Baltimore, a team that none of us believed in going into the weekend, and now it's like, ooh, okay, Baltimore, interesting. They got destroyed. That game was over by the end of the second quarter. Alex, which one was a bigger red flag for you? The way that the Lions performed in Baltimore or the Bills losing in New England? It's the Bills. Hands down, it's the Bills. I, I, look, I didn't expect the Lions to look that bad against the Raven, Ravens. Everybody has bad nights, and that apparently was it for Dan Campbell and his squad. I don't know how you explain what took place in Buffalo other than your team isn't as good as I thought they were. How do you let Mac Jones throw for almost 300 yards and two touchdowns? How does your quarterback get outplayed by their quarterback? Stephon Diggs was invisible in that game. You had no running game. Your defense couldn't find ways to stop Kendrick Bourne. It makes zero sense to me. So this whole Buffalo is always a, a dark horse team in the AFC. No, I'm done with that. Like to me, You've dropped significantly in the AFC. There's no explanation for that. There's yeah. an explanation. You stink. Their quarterback is wildly erratic, dude. He does this. This is who Josh Allen is. When somebody goes out with you and every single time they go out with you, they get into a fight. Guess what? It's not you. It's them. They have shown you who they are. And if you expect them to be something different next time around, well, I, that's on you now, right? If we're expecting the Bills to be something different than what they've shown us to be for years with Josh Allen as their quarterback, that's on us. The Bills are frauds. They're not a legitimate Super Bowl contender because their quarterback can't put together three or four consecutive quality level games. Now, there's going to be a game soon where Josh Allen looks like the best quarterback in the NFL, does stuff that no other quarterback in the league is capable of doing. That's who he is. Unfortunately, there will also be a game in the next four weeks where he looks like he is the worst quarterback in the league, who makes the worst throws in the league, who attempts to do stuff that no other quarterback should do in the league. That's who Josh Allen is, man. And so when it comes back to bite you against New England like this, or like it did in Jacksonville when they went over to England and played horribly in that London game, none of us should be surprised. The Buffalo Bills will make the playoffs. There will be games in the next few weeks where you're watching them. Like maybe it's at Philadelphia. Maybe it's at Kansas City. Maybe it's at Cincinnati. They'll probably win one, maybe even two of those games. Don't believe in them. Do not buy into what the Bills are selling because with Josh Allen as the quarterback, this is always right around the corner. All right, Indra. Wow, that was pretty good. You said basically everything I wanted to say because it's the Bills that were more disappointing. I think the Lions game, like, yes, that was a shellacking delivered by the Ravens. At least the Ravens are a comparable, or not a comparable, but a competitive football team. And that was one of those where I think the Lions just got a little too out over their skis and overlooked Baltimore and got shellacked and didn't know what to do after the first half. Like, every now and then that happens. I'm not viewing the Lions any differently than I was going to heading into that week. But the Bills... Come on, man. It's New England. Bill Belichick's not even excited about his, like, 300th win. He he sounded as dead as you guys did, looked in that game. So, yeah, it's definitely Buffalo. They're a team that's going to get in, like, 10-7, and going to make the playoffs, and maybe they go on a little bit of a run. But at some point, Josh Allen's going to come back to Josh Allen. Let's continue with NFL quick hitters. Kansas City Chiefs prove once again they are the top team to beat in the AFC. 31-17 win at home yesterday. Ho-hum. 
Nothing to see here against the Chargers. First half was awesome. Second half, pretty damn boring. They end up winning that game going away. Call that the Taylor Swift game. And then last night, in what was the best matchup of the week, we all thought the Dolphins would go into Philadelphia and not beat the hell out of Philly, but win the game nonetheless. Well, Philadelphia had different plans. A.J. Brown continues to be one of the best receivers in the NFL that tush-push, brotherly shove, whatever you want to call it, is the single most dominant play in the NFL. Alex, yesterday, for me, my biggest takeaway, Chiefs and Eagles, just as they were last year and they proved it all season long, continue to be the teams to beat until proven otherwise. Do you agree that the Chiefs and Eagles are still those teams? Yeah, I think that's the two dominant forces, and I think Baltimore slapped us back to reality a little bit with Detroit, and we didn't luckily have to see Cincinnati, their bye week, which don't have to worry about them. So, yeah, I think that's your dominant teams. Frankly, I think another thing that I learned from this weekend was I don't know if I'm all in on this Dolphins team being as dominant as we thought. This was a prove it game for them. Uh, And I think you sent us the tweet earlier that basically said, like, Miami's done well, but Miami basically has beaten teams that are combined. What? Two wins so far this season. So got the numbers here for you and credit to T-Bone for finding this. The Dolphins five wins this year have come against teams with a combined record of eight and 25 this season. All of those teams have won fewer or two or fewer games so far this year against those teams. The ones that are eight and 25 on the year, the Dolphins have a point differential of plus 95. Amazing. They look like the best offense in the NFL against the bills and the Eagles, the two legitimate threats in either respective conference that they've gone up against negative 42. Yep. So they are a team that is punching down. When they go against lesser opponents, they absolutely shred them. When they go up against legitimate contenders, though, so far this year, it's like going up against your older brother. Yeah, you can get close. You can make it kind of interesting, as they did last night against Philadelphia. But eventually, they keep you within an arm's length distance. That seems to be where the Dolphins are at right now. I still think they're a really good team, but last night the Eagles proved they're better. Yeah, I'll be curious to see if they can get that portion figured out of going up against the bigger brother because it was clear last night they talked about it on the broadcast. Give credit to Chris Collinsworth because he was saying crap, they wanted to run the ball around the edge. Well, what did the Eagles do? The Eagles cut off the edge. They weren't going to let them run on the outside, and Miami had no adjustment in the running game, and it felt like that was what put them behind the eight ball in that game. So Philadelphia able to make that adjustment. Miami didn't have any. We'll see if they can adjust as we get going down the year. I do agree with you. I think they're still a good football team. But, yeah, it's clear the Eagles and the Chiefs are the teams to beat in the NFL right now in their respective conference. And the thing with the Dolphins right now, they feel kind of like USC when you watch college football. Yeah. Go up against the lesser opponents. You look great. When you actually meet someone that's good, you're not as impressive. And I'm like old misses that way, too, when yeah. I watch them sometimes. I'm looking at the Dolphins, like, remainder of the schedule. And, like, you know, they, they play the Chiefs in two weeks, so that's going to be another it's opponent. in Germany, so I wouldn't take too much from okay, it. Okay, so BK will probably games. bet on that yeah, one and forget for sure. about it. Like, you'll play the Cowboys, which we'll kind of see what that one looks like. But other than that, I mean, you're talking about just mediocre opponents. Washington, Tennessee, the Jets twice. Like, I think we're going to end this season looking at Miami as like a a serious contender for a Super Bowl, but we're going to forget about these types of games where we're like, yeah, but remember, they couldn't beat these teams. I I think Miami is in that same same conversation with Buffalo, where both of them are really good teams. I genuinely believe, like, despite my rant that I just went on, I think Buffalo is a really good football team. The problem is their quarterback is so wildly erratic that I can't trust them over the course of a three or four game sample size against quality opponents in the playoffs. I think the same might end up being true about Miami. They've got just too many holes. I will be curious to see what it looks like when they've got their cornerbacks back. 
When Jalen Ramsey's back on the field, Xavier Howard's back on the field, that'll change some things defensively with what they're capable of doing with Vic Fangio. That'll be a big difference maker for them. But until then, and they, they're without their left tackle right now as well, he's always hurt, so I don't know if I can trust that he'll be back. They'll be good. I just don't know if they're a championship contender. Somebody on the text line makes what I think is a fair point. Don't forget about the 49ers. Yeah. 49ers can be thrown into this conversation. I think they're right up there. I think it's the Chiefs, Eagles, and 49ers right now as the clear-cut top three teams in the NFL. All right, last thing here. Which surprising bottom feeder in your mind, it's from the same division actually, is a bigger disappointment so far this year for you, Alex? The Packers or the Vikings? Because as I was watching the Packers yesterday, I thought to myself, man, this team, I, I don't think you can bring this back with Jordan Love next year. I just don't think he's the guy. And this has got to be a crazy disappointing season because they should be a playoff team in this NFC, and I don't think there's going to be. I would say it's the Vikings because I expected this from the Packers. I didn't think Jordan Love was going to be a good enough quarterback for them. I didn't think they had a good enough offense. And frankly, your all-around game's not going to be very successful if those areas are lacking. The Vikings are surprising because... They made it seem like they were fixing their defensive problems from last year to this year, and I haven't seen any fixture on that side of it. And I know Jefferson's hurt now, but from the first couple of weeks when Jefferson was healthy, this dynamic offense that had Addison and Jefferson and Hawkinson and Madison, a lot of sins at the end of this, um, but nothing. Like, you weren't you weren't as highlight like people made Minnesota out to be Miami this season offensively and they weren't that so they're the bigger disappointment yeah to me it's Minnesota because I did kind of expect this from Green Bay maybe not this bad but I I was with Alex I I didn't trust the offense and I didn't trust Jordan Love coming into the year and I've been proven right about that so far and and I think with Minnesota I I didn't think they would be good I I thought they could sneak their way in I thought they could be a 10 and 7 or 9 and 18 that could kind of be on that fringe playoff picture because of their offense and the offense just hasn't lived up to expectations and part of that is because of the Jefferson injury recently but even when they had Jefferson the offense still wasn't at the level I thought it was going to be I think at. we already know six of the seven teams in the NFC like I think you can read these in pen Eagles Cowboys Lions 49ers Seahawks and then whoever comes out of the NFC South I think it's going to be the Falcons but you could convince me on somebody else those are six of your seven teams and then everybody else you can throw into the mix for that seventh spot yeah. Rams Commanders, Vikings, one of the other teams from the NFC South, they're they're all fighting to lose by 25 points in the first round of the playoffs. That That's what everybody else is in this mix for. Way to go, Rams. They, they're trying playoffs, to baby. get beat by the San Francisco 49ers or the Eagles in the first round. But that's I think that's where we're at right now we're with gonna the pull NFC off an upset. race, if you will. You're bleeping team. Yeah. Did you see hey, them? Hey, yeah. it wasn't their fault. They Trash. got screwed by that spot. You're the one that said last week that Matt Stafford also, was such a great quarterback. I just want to point out, when BK made that pick, and we'll hear it in the pick and reveal, I said I didn't want to take that game because I didn't have a good feeling. He's like, wow, the Pittsburgh Steelers, they're terrible. They are. They are. Well, they won. Yeah. yeah. Against a more terrible team. No. I I don't understand anything about what the Rams were trying to do. They were trying to run the football against one of the best run defenses in the NFL when Puka Nakua was absolutely shredding them. Made no sense. The game plan made no sense. What's you have Freeman, who's been sitting on this couch for six weeks, and Daryl Henderson, who nobody else in the league wanted. <laughs> Let's run the ball fifty times today. Okay, cool, good luck. That's anger, which I have been there with the Detroit Lions. Which thanks Dan Campbell for using Jameer Gibbs for once. They ran the ball thirty-one times and threw it twenty-nine. Royce Freeman and Daryl Henderson combined for thirty carries against one of the best run defenses in the NFL. The Rams, <laughs> the game plan made. 
no sense whatsoever. We're just trying to establish the run yeah. for the whole game. Clearly a lot on the other side. Lose. Hey, Sean, what do you want to do? Run the damn ball! <laughs> Coming up next, 314-399-9646 is the Air Comfort Service text line for questions and answers. we got to get to T-Bones, Illini, and I want to get a couple of thoughts in on City SC after their season came to an end over the weekend. We'll get to all of that in much more with questions and answers next here on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. You've got questions. We may have the answers. Maybe it's PK and Ferrario's questions and answers on 101 ESPN. 399-9646 is the Air Comfort Service text line for questions and answers. We'll get to some of your questions from the text line or on YouTube, youtube.com slash 101 ESPN STL. If you want to throw in questions there, we will get to those here momentarily. But first, I have a question for our guy T-Bone. Yeah. Let's go ahead and take a listen to what this sounded like uh-huh. on Saturday. Lock! That's Nolan Rucci, folks. That's not Hayden Rucci. It's his brother, Nolan. I got a quick question. How does this individual have a voice through an entire season? I don't know. Because that man just wasted everything he had in his vocal cord on one call. Is that your question? Yeah, that is a good question. I don't know how he does it That was incredible, first of all. Um, Second of all, that's what it sounded like as Wisconsin comes back (laughs) and scores 18 unanswered in the fourth quarter. To beat Illinois in Champaign, twenty-five oh, to twenty-one. That really mattered. T-Bone, what happened, buddy? Dude, they just stink. Like, let's just let's call a spade a spade. They're a terrible football. That's what you said right last now. year or last week. I know, and I stand by what I said. They somehow ran into Maryland, who like sleptwalked through that game, and beat that snot out of them. This is a game you have to win, man. Yeah, well, someone's up. that big in the fourth quarter. You, you lose and Newton killed them, though. I know, but you're up 21 to seven. I, mean, I don't care if you lose caliber player on that. It's the team. fourth quarter and you're up 21 to seven. You can't lose that game. Someone on the text line is blaming the officials on why they lost. Yeah. I know. Game. So did Brett Bielham afterwards. Cool. Hey, man, you got to keep playing. You got to keep playing. You were up 21 to seven. You end up giving up the field goal early on your next three consecutive drives. Punt, punt, turnover on downs. That's not on the officials. That's not on the defense losing its best player. That's on you. You didn't find a way to execute when you needed to down the stretch. I I get so sick of these excuses, man, because like Mizzou, they were without one of their best players in the final quarter and a half against LSU. You don't see anybody blaming that. They didn't tackle. They didn't tackle against LSU. You don't make the plays that are necessary. You lose the football game. They threw a pick six. You lose the football game. Illinois didn't make the plays that were necessary. Your, your program stinks, stank, stunks. Uh, you're not telling me anything new that I haven't said. I know they stink, stank, stunk. Stand up for your team, man. No, they're terrible. They're not even worth my time. Wow. Unbelievable. That's why I mean, you're they're going to make poser. a bowl and they're going to celebrate. And I'm going to go, Brett, dude. Six wins. <laughs> like, come on. This Been there before. Making a bowl. Yeah, they can make a bowl. No, they ain't making a bowl. They could win th- three more games. <laughs> three out of four? The rest of their schedule sucks. Have yeah. you seen what's left? Have you watched Illinois? Have you I watched mean, Wisconsin? Yeah, but have you watched Indiana's terrible. Northwestern's terrible. Minnesota's terrible. Okay, so you got to go 100% winning percentage in the three games that yeah. are like 50-50 coin flips yeah. for your program. You I didn't say Wisconsin. they're going to be eligible. I said they could be. No, they're not going hey, to be. Hey, man, open up your ears. I'm The one thing, I'll take the blast me on the Illinois program, but if you listen to me, 
you know I'm right about what I'm saying. Someone said as an Arkansas fan, I can guarantee Illinois has a Bielma problem. The thing is, I, I think Bielma is a perfectly fine head coach. He doesn't have the players right now, and that's part well, of the Bielma problem of, is yeah. he might be the guy not he might not be the guy to bring in the right players. And that's where there is He can't fall behind the eight ball. Legitimate question. And that's what happened this year. You can't have a year in which you go five and seven, four and uh eight. Because yeah, you it can't really recruit all started out with the Nebraska game. Yeah. That that was the one you just you couldn't lose. And that. I will say this, like, though they don't have the players, Fagan is one of the top recruits that the Illinois football program's had in a long time, and he's just now seeing the field. It took them too long to implement him into the game. I think Bielma and Underwood just get together and cry. At least Underwood's got a four-star recruit on campus. And on, for all of the criticism of Brad Underwood, he's a really good coach. Yeah. He's frustrating because his teams are good, and then they don't find they find a way to lose in March, but they're getting there every year. His teams are really good. He just... Once you get there, it, it becomes a little difficult. All right, 314-399-9646 is the Air Comfort Service text line for questions and answers. Guys, now that the first season for St. Louis City SC, at least in terms of the regular season, is in the books, what were your thoughts on City and how much of a chance do you give them to be able to win the Cup this year? Uh, I mean, it was a resounding success in every way possible. Yeah. You couldn't have asked for anything more. The team was outstanding, so much better than anybody could have reasonably expected. I know me and T-Bone both have a bet on them to win the cup, so we're certainly uh, hoping that that ends up being the case. Regardless of what happens this postseason, though, they could lose in the first round. That would be disappointing, don't get me wrong, but it would still be considered a successful first year, given everything that they've been able to do. They have created a real buzz around the team that will be long-lasting, and that is huge for a, a program in its infancy. Yeah, I, I mean, this... It was as impressive of an inaugural season as you can ask for an expansion team to enter it and then just dominate their conference and be the best of the best. Um, like you mentioned, this is a successful season no matter what, and it just builds the excitement going into the playoffs and then, of course, beyond this season. But uh, I, I will be really curious to see that first-round matchup because you were dominant from start to finish this season. You had a little bit of a hiccup in the middle of this season once the injuries kicked in. Uh, but now you really have to go out there and prove it. And it's great that they have a home field advantage throughout these postseason because that's going to benefit that team. T-Bone, I am curious. They lost their last couple of games, haven't looked great in them. Is that a legitimate concern for you going into the postseason? It's not a major concern, but it is kind of eye-popping and I think it'll be, you'll get a feel after game one against uh, whoever wins Sporting KC or San Jose because as much as like they were saying all the right things, we got to build momentum, we got to build momentum, and then momentum was never built going into the playoffs. So is it concerning? A little bit. I'll have a better read on that after game sure. one. But to the question of, you know, how should, you think, by the way, if it's sporting Casey, they should beat the snot out of them. Yeah. I think they've took their business against them. That's what everybody well. wants too, I right? Think, Casey. Yeah. I think the two teams that have me concerned of what happens when city gets to them, that'll be more in the semis. Assuming you take care of business because they should take care of business and get to the semis, Seattle and LAFC. Yeah. Those are the two teams to keep an eye on because if I'm not mistaken, city has not beaten they them. They lost both to Seattle this year. I they think. lost both to Seattle. Now again, the last game of the year against Seattle, read what you will under that. And then I think they tied one with LAFC and lost one yeah. to LAFC. So those are the two teams that have given city the most trouble. Those are the two teams that I think those are the only two teams that can truly beat City in the playoffs. 3143999646 is the Air Comfort Service text line to get involved in the show. By the way, for Vegas, for those of you curious what Vegas thinks about the uh, the cup, they've got FC Cincinnati as the favorite to win the cup this year at 3 to 1. 
LAFC, the team you just mentioned, at six and a half to one. They're the favorite to win the Western Conference. And then St. Louis City SC at seven to one is uh, third right now in the rankings of most likely to win the cup. After that, you got Orlando at 11 to one, Philly at 14 to one, along with Seattle and Columbus at 14 to one as well. well. That tells you right there that the West seems weaker because most of those teams that you read off were in the East. Uh, Yeah, yeah. A lot of teams, and they just they view St. Louis and LA as the clear cut favorites. Yeah. They they based on these odds, it seems to suggest that one of those two teams is likely to represent the West in the Cup. All right, coming up next, three one four three nine 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 six four six is the Air Comfort Service X line to get involved in the show. If Pavel Buchnevich is coming back either in the next game or the one after that, should he be reunited with the top line, or has Brandon Saad captured? in the lineup. We'll talk about it next year on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Put it to the front. It's gone up in the skates of Thomas. Loose puck. They score! Brandon Saad has given the Blues the first lead of their season. Over the line in the middle to Kapanen. Onto his forehand. What a play! Centers. He scores! Neighbors was in front. Might have hit a Penguins defenseman on a feed from Kapanen. Two on one. Blues the other way. Saad in. Shooting. Score! Brandon Saad having a Saturday night. There's the horn. Bring out the Zamboni. Great rebound win for the Blues to finish up the homestand. And the Blues skate to a 4-2 victory over the Pittsburgh Penguins. Find another great performance from the goaltender, Jordan Bennington. That's what it sounded like right here in your home of the Blues. 101 ESPN on Saturday night as the Blues get a big win, a big uh, rebound victory at home against the Pittsburgh Penguins. Alex, this, the line that you heard a lot from there was Robert Thomas, Jordan Cairo, and Brandon Saad. And if we're being honest, really the one that was most impressive out of that group was Brandon Saad, who looked like he was shot out of a cannon for much of that game. It's as good as we've seen him skating in a really long time. He looked like he belonged with those two. And I've said this really since the moment that he signed here in St. Louis. I've always liked the way that he fits with Robert Thomas and Jordan Cairo. And it's because of something that I heard Craig Berube say after the game on Saturday night. It's the way that he plays getting to the net. Well, that's what he does for them guys. You know, he's always going to the net and uh, opens things up for them. And like he's, 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 he scores a lot of goals around that net. That's where he scores his goals. Alex, I like that. He creates space and he can win off of the rush. And that's what we saw a lot of on Saturday night. If you can play that way, you can succeed with Robert Thomas and Jordan Cairo. They'll find you at the front of the net. They love with those fancy stat or fancy passes <laughs> that they've got getting it across the ice that they're going to find you. Does he deserve more opportunities there? Or when Pavel Buchnevich gets back, does he just immediately go back up to that top line with Thomas and Cairo? I, I it's one game, so I'd let well one and a half games, I guess, because Booch got injured in that other one, and um, you played him with that the line, and frankly, that that line against Arizona didn't look good. I'd like to see another one if Booch and he was in a red con, uh, no contact jersey today, took a little bit of shoving, so it sounds like they're probably going to slow play this one. So I would doubt he plays Tuesday, but let's when Booch comes back, if Sod is still having this success on that line, and this line does this against Winnipeg tomorrow night then I don't move them because you put Pavel Buchnevich with Thomas and Kyrie because you were trying to get the best out of that line. And in the first two games, 
they weren't very good. It's not like they were overwhelmingly great offensively. And in two games that saw Thomas and Kyrie play together, one game, they were the dominant line. Oh, and by the way, they also eliminated Sidney Crosby's line with Jake Gensel in that game. So I, I would keep them there. And the thing about Brandon Saad is, and I just went back and looked through this on moneypuck.com just to kind of see the line combinations throughout Saad's career. We all know the success he had in Chicago. You play with some of the greats in Patrick Kane and Jonathan Taze. In Columbus, he played with um, with uh, Wenberg, who is now with Seattle. That was the season he scored 31 goals. And in Colorado, he played with Nazem Kadri. And you go to two years ago, he played a lot with, um, with Braden Shen. So the, what Craig Berube said is Brandon Saad's M.O., First of all, he's got sneaky speed that people don't talk enough about. He is very fast yeah. when the puck is on his stick. He can create space out of nothing. But two of his three goals were scored standing, or two of the two goals were scored standing on that doorstep um, against Pittsburgh. So I keep him there because Cairo and Thomas generate shots. And frankly, you need somebody who can retrieve pucks. And I haven't seen that a lot from Pavel Buchnevich in two games. I saw that in one game for 60 minutes. Like when they put the puck in the zone, Saad was the workhorse that got it and then parked himself in front of the net. So, yeah, I keep him here. And frankly, I'll probably put a Pavel Buchnevich with Braden Shen and Jake Neighbors shifts down to either to the fourth line or you put him on the third line with Kevin Hayes. I would consider moving Sammy Blay down to that fourth line. And it's not because Sammy Blay's been bad. I actually think that line has been pretty solid for the most part. On Saturday, it was their worst good. game. Saturday was definitely the worst game from them. But I like what Jake Neighbors looks like as a top nine forward, man. I, th- I think that's where he belongs. And when you look at the identity of Torpchenko, Sunquist, and potentially Sammy Blay, man, that is a line that can legitimately become an identity line for you. And you don't have to treat them like a fourth line. You can put them out there as Craig Burby has been doing so far. You got a big face off or you just scored a goal. Get them out there, man. Get them out there to be able to shut things down defensively. Sammy plays hitting everything that is moving right now. So go ahead and put him in a role that fits him really well. And if you end up doing that, instead of having Hayes, Verona, and Sammy play, maybe you put Jake Neighbors on that line. And you have a shutdown line with Shin and Buchnevich yep. and Kapanen. That's what I would do. That you can put up there against, especially when you're at home ice and you get the last change, you can put them up there against the opposing team's best lines. And now you have a potential matchup problem for opposing teams where you've got Thomas Kairou Saad with all that speed out there. I think Saad just drives to the net quicker than Buchnevich does. This is not a shot against Buchnevich. You guys know I love him. He's my favorite player on the team, the way that he plays on the ice. But he is more... Um, he takes his time. He he will. He thinks through the game. Saw just freaking coast, man. Well, I mean, look, the guy never gets assists because all he does is shoots the puck, and like that's what you want from somebody on you that need line. Somebody like that, you do. And and I don't think it's a bad He's thing. Deliberate. That's what I was trying to. That, that's the word for Buchanan. I don't think it's a bad thing to have two guys on a line that just shoot the puck nonstop, and Jordan Kyrou and Brandon Saad, and then Robert Thomas. You hope can get those shots going a little bit more. What I just didn't like in the first couple of games with Pavel Buchnevich is it felt like there was way too many passing situations of like, no, you take it. No, you take it. No, you take it. If you put the puck on Brandon Saad's stick, he's not going to say, no, you take it. It's going to be, I want to shoot the damn puck. And that's what you need from that line. And I love the way that's what I was going with it. I would frame these lines way you just put it. Saad stays with Thomas and Kairou. Booch goes with Shen and Kapanen. And frankly, that's a line that can shut down the other team's best. And then a third line that you could get some advantages with, with a Jake Neighbors, who, by the way, also played really well with Braden Shen in that game with Verana and Kevin Hayes. And then you've got a legit fourth line. The one thing about Saad playing on that line, 
I got to give credit to Thomas and Kyrou too, because they had an awful game. They were outplayed by Clayton Keller and Nick Schmaltz in that Arizona Coyotes game. And Saad was on that line with them. They were outplayed. And then you go to the next game against the Pittsburgh Penguins with Sidney Crosby, Brian Rust, and Jake Gensel. And I don't even remember a lot of situations with Crosby and them on the ice. So that's credit to all three of those guys. And if you're working well against a Sidney Crosby, I want to see it against Winnipeg with Mark Shifley. I want to see it with Calgary with Lindholm. I want to see you go up against the best. 314-399-9646 is the Air Comfort Service text line. Alex, I, I do want to get your thoughts on this because I don't really understand this. From the 314. Guys, it was one game, Todd had a terrible year last year. Let's see some consistency and then we can talk. What did people think Brandon Saad was when the Blues signed him? Because what he's been so far is exactly who you signed him to be. In 2022, in 78 games, he had 24 goals and 50 points. Last year, in 71 games, he had 20 goals, basically, 19, and essentially 40 points. This is who he is. Like He's he's not a guy that you should have expected, I, I don't think at least, to come in and put up 60-plus points a season. He's, he's never done that in his entire NHL career. He is like clockwork. Every year you know what you're getting. It's somewhere between 40 and 50 points and somewhere between 20 and 25 goals. You know that's what you can put in the back of your pocket, and that's why teams like having him. Because if you're a contender, you can count on him to go out there and give you that that goal production over the course of the season. He's going to go through dry spells because that's goal scoring, man. We've seen this with Vladimir Tarasenko. We saw it with David Perron. We've seen it now with Brandon Saad. There will be five, ten game stretches where you just don't see anything. Hell, Brand, uh, Braden Shin is going through a little bit of that right now. He has not put himself on the score sheet so far this year. You know he's going to. He's another guy that's going to put up 20 goals over the course of the year. Am I missing something here? No, and I mean, of course, all of the texts are starting to come in. It's like all the trolls came out from under the bridge with this one. To say that Brandon Saad had an awful year last year, go back and look at who he played a majority of the season with. The line that he played the most on was Ryan O'Reilly and Josh Levo. Does that sound like a line that is going to be able to create a lot of offense? Like Josh Levo is in the American Hockey League now. No disrespect to him, but that's what you were trying to accomplish. And we got a text that said, you guys are killing me. Brandon Saad is not a top-line guy, and you're arguing playing him over a point-per-game guy. It's not about that, though. It's about combinations. And it's it's chemistry. Yeah, it's about how they fit with other players. Buchnevich, I I think Buchnevich is a much better hockey player than Brandon Saad. Full stop. There is really no even discussion to be had there. Pavel Buchnevich, I've said all along, Alex, is like, a top 30-ish winger in the NHL. Maybe that's conservative even. Like, I I think he's excellent. But with that top line with Thomas and Kyrou, you need a specific skill set for that third piece to the puzzle. You don't always see the Toronto Maple Leafs having their three best players on one line. Now, they sometimes do it, but it's not always the case. In Edmonton, they don't always have their three best players on that top line. They'll do it occasionally, but again, not always the case. It's about what you need from that third piece in that role. And I think personally, Brandon Saad fits that specific role a little better than Buchnevich. I think you can make a case that your top line is actually not Thomas, Kairou, and Saad. If Buchnevich comes back and played with plays with Braden Shin, you can make a case that that is actually your top line, quote unquote, in terms of ice time that should be handed out because they are a better matchup against the opposing team's top line. Last season... Pavel Buchnevich, Robert Thomas, and Jordan Cairo, who played 196 minutes, it was 35 games together, had a 47% expected goal percentage. Brandon Saad last season 
had four different lines he played on that were better expected goal percentage than that. Brandon Saad's a really good player. What Craig Berube does with his lines, scoring guy, centerman, puck retriever. And in two games, which this was the case last year when they played together, yeah, they've got all of the offense in the world. They've got creativity, but nobody's retrieving pucks on that line. We talked about the one-and-done nature in those first couple of games with Booch, Thomas, and Kairou. Nobody's retrieving pucks. They go in, you shoot it, and if it hits the net, well, then great. You're going to go for the faceoff. If not, you're chasing it again. What we saw against Pittsburgh, and somebody did make a great point, Pittsburgh's forwards are very slow. That was an opportunistic moment for the Blues, and they capitalized on it. What do they do against Winnipeg? What do they do against Calgary, Vancouver? We're going to find that out. But... What I saw in that game against Pittsburgh was when the puck went in, Brandon Saad went after it and came out with it, and the puck, the play stayed alive. And that is how that line is going to thrive because they can't win off of highlight reel passes. Other teams are going to stop that in their tracks, and you're going to be chasing the Not puck. consistently. Yeah. Some, of that'll, some of that's good. The you inferior like teams it. you're going to be able to do that with, but that's how you get stopped and how you're chasing the game. And what Craig Berube said they did against Arizona was chase the game. So you put Sod on that line, and now they have a little bit more puck retrieval. By the way, Jeremy Rutherford just tweeted out that Pavel Buchnevich, when asked after practice today, politely declined to chat, and then he added, I just don't know if I'm going to play so not sure my my guess is he probably will not be in the lineup on Tuesday so tomorrow night against Winnipeg maybe Thursday against Calgary but I think you said it Alex they're kind of slow playing this I don't blame them he's yeah. a guy that's dealt with some injuries in the past so get him right make sure that he's back to 100% no reason to rush this this early on in the season especially if a nagging injury could potentially get worse so we'll see with Buchnevich either way Against Tuesday or against Winnipeg, I would like to see them with Brandon Saad on that top line. Um, and then we'll see how that thing goes on the road at the Winnipeg Jets tomorrow night. Alex will have pregame coverage for you right here on your home of the Blues 101 ESPN beginning tomorrow at 645. Puck drop on your home of the Blues starting at 745. Coming up next, let's play a game of in or out. You give us a scenario. We'll tell you if we are in or out here on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Come on, man. Are you in or are you out? It's in or out with PK and Ferrario. Four three nine 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 six four six is the air comfort service text line for in or out. You give us a scenario. We will tell you if we are in or out here on 101 ESPN boys. I'm going to start with this in or out over the weekend. We watched the beginning of the end of Lincoln Riley at USC oh, in. I mean, you get there. They're exhibit A, B, C and D of how you kind of need at least an average defense. If your offense is going to be great. And it would help if your offense actually performed. Well, that's very true also. But Caleb Williams is too worried about, you know, getting stock in the team that's going to draft him rather than worrying about actually being a competent quarterback for USC. But I don't know how you could keep. I mean, obviously, it gets into the recruiting conversation of making sure that the recruitment is at its best. And if you're Lincoln Riley with USC, you're going to have success there. But it's also going to have to go to the talent on the field. And if you've got the best quarterback in college football or supposedly the best quarterback in college football, you should be dominating in all areas, but frankly, that's underperformed and your defense has been embarrassing. I'm in, but I don't know if USC will do it, but I would be in on it speed at the beginning of the end. He, he's one of the most overrated head coaches in college football. 
Like, he can do great recruiting offensively, but what's been his biggest issue? He's never had a defense, and it always comes back to bite him. And he's made the playoff, what, once in his career at Oklahoma with Baker Mayfield, and they just couldn't get a stop, and they ended up losing in the semifinals? Like, at some point, you've got to start recruiting a defense, and he never has done that. So I, I would say I'm probably in on this, and I don't know if he could probably – it'll be tough, but he could probably make up for the loss of Caleb Williams at the end of the year. But he'll never recruit a defense, and that's going to be the biggest MO for him. I don't think it's recruiting that's a problem. Their talent's fine. If their talent at, the, at on this defense in 2023 is actually really good. Like Their talent level on defense is much better than what Missouri's throwing out there on a week-to-week basis. I think it's about the way that he operates as a head coach. And what I mean by that is, man, this is a guy that is so specific with what he's doing offensively that your defense only goes up against that every single week. And when you go up against a Lincoln Riley style offense, you don't have the same physical component to your game that you're going to need in a smash mouth football game against Arizona or against Utah or against Notre Dame. And your defense is so specific in terms of wanting to get explosive plays. So you want to get the TFLs. You want to get the sacks. The problem is, if you don't get those plays, it's going 50 yards over your head the other direction, and you can't get consistent stops. And if you're playing that way, man, you can't be a contender in terms of winning the college football playoff. It's kind of like what I said earlier today about the Bills. You can win specific games that way. You'll you'll see USC pull off an upset probably at some point down the stretch. They'll beat one of these really good teams in the Pac-12. But then they'll lose one or two others, and you'll say to yourself, man, I, I'm really surprised that they ended up losing that game. It's no longer surprising, though. His offense is going to be good enough to be able to make them competitive. They're going to win 10 games every year. But if you're USC and you want to compete for national championships, he's going to have to have a serious come to Jesus moment where he says, I have to change the way that the entire program operates. Otherwise, this isn't going to work. I don't think it's a recruiting issue. I don't think it's a talent level issue. I think it is a way that our team operates philosophically issue. And I don't know how that changes unless Lincoln Riley himself changes as a head coach. Uh, Boys, in or out, you'll be officially bought into the Blues if they take points in all three games this week. When you say bought in, I'm sorry to ask a follow-up question. I know this is No follow-up questions. T-Bone? What what do you mean by that? Like as a playoff contender or like a a real threat in the... Playoff contender, but more so you're stopping asking the questions. Is this for for real? Just three games? Three games, you get a point in all of them. Not, Not there yet. I need, I need to see it. We said by the end of the month, I guess that would be the end of the month. <sighs> and in I this need to scenario, see how it happens. In this scenario, you're taking points from Dallas, Seattle, Pittsburgh, Vancouver, Calgary, and Winnipeg. Yeah, I, I'm not all in, but I will be closer. I will be closer to, to hitting the button of saying, okay, I'm, I'm ready to be hurt. I'm ready to allow myself to be vulnerable. I'm out because I think it has to be about 15 to 20 before I can truly buy in because I I know we set the standard originally for this end of October, but if it continues to look like it has and they're not generating enough offensively, I'm still going to be sitting there going, I just still believe at some point you, this is going to fall apart because you got to score goals in modern NHL to be a winning hockey team. And I don't know if they continue to win these 2-1, 3-2 style of hockey games. So I say I probably need a little bit more time even if they take points in these three. Now, if the offense plays really well, then I think it's a different conversation. 
but I'm assuming they're winning like they have been recently. So I'm going to say out is going to take 15 games for me. Yeah, I'm going to say in on this one because there are certain areas that I'm going to be looking at that I, I you need to see more of. Um, but if for, for those games, if you're taking points against the teams that I just listed off, that's that middle tier that Doug Armstrong's talked sure. about. And you're playing competently. And I think if you're taking points, that means your defensive scheme has stayed intact all the month of October and your goaltending has been elite. In that case, you're putting yourself in the conversation. T-Bone? In or out, the St. Louis Blues will keep Kasperi Kapanen past this year. And I like this one. And I, I'm, again, I know it's four games into the season, but... The way Kapanen plays versus the way Verona plays, Kapanen is more Blues-esque. And I I know I'm putting the, the cart before the horse here. Like, you've got offense coming in terms of guys like Verona, Zachary Bolduc, uh, Dvorsky. I don't know if you guys have been paying attention. Jimmy Snuggerud is, like, the best player in college hockey right now. You've got guys coming that bring what Verona brings in terms of a one-time shot, a lethal threat offensively. There's not a lot of guys that play the way that Kapanen plays in terms of speed, good defensively, ability to make highlight reel plays and finish. So I would keep Kapanen, and I don't think he's going to cost you an arm and a leg. What do you think it'll be like three million bucks somewhere? Probably somewhere around that. I'm not sure what he's making right now. Point two is what he's at. So I would say if he has a good season, you're probably talking about three and a half, maybe four. I mean, that's a that's a guy who could play in your top six, top nine in any situation. So yeah, I would keep him. I'll say in as well. I think he is the more likely of the two to be around. I still really like what Verona brings to the table. And I do think if you lose him, you're losing some pop on the power play. I would like to see him, by the way, on the top unit. We say we don't even see him on the power play. So I like Kapanen a lot. I think if he's around three to three and a half, I'm definitely interested in keeping him around. If he's more than that, I don't know. Then it gets a little dicey for me, but three to three and a half I'm in I think that's probably ultimately where he comes in and I'll say in I think he sticks around for at least another couple of years yeah, I'd say in as well because I think he's been one of the best forwards on the team right now and I was just looking this he's gonna be at least right now and I get it, it's only four games he's kind of on pace for where his career high was at 44 points and if he can give you 44 points playing in that was he on third line second line second line then that's a win for the St. Louis Blues yeah. Got to get some more goal production, but that'll come. Yeah, that's going to come. That's going to come when that line starts clicking a little bit more, and that's why I think it wouldn't be a worse thing to put a Buchnevich with a Braden Shen and a Kapanen if that can get going because we already know how offensively inclined Buch is. 314-399-9646 is the air comfort service text line for in or out. Guys, in or out, the Rangers are going to pull it off, and they will head to the World Series after they beat the Astros tonight. Let's hold off on this. Alex, I want to discuss it on the other side. The Rangers going back to Max Scherzer in a big spot tonight against the Houston Astros. Is this the right choice? T-Bone has a controversial take. We'll talk about it next year on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Garcia makes his statement 
And the Rangers have their sights set on Game 7. That's what it sounded like on Fox as the Rangers force a Game 7. The best words in all of sports alongside Alex and T-Bone. I'm BK. So the Rangers are going into this game and they're putting out their best dude, man. They got Max Scherzer on the mound. Uh, what more could you again? ask for for the Texas Rangers? Except T-Bone says that actually shouldn't be the guy that is on the mound for the Texas Rangers going into this one. Oh, T-Bone, you disagree with the future Hall of Fame manager in Bruce Bochy and the yeah. future Hall of Fame pitcher that he's going with in Max Scherzer. Why is that? Because Max Scherzer, one, did not look like himself in his first start back, as we saw. It was a and it game. changed the – you don't need those in the playoffs. <laughs> um, and he didn't, he didn't end up going – He decides to go with him because he hasn't pitched in a long time, but he still trusts the fact that it's, hey, it's Max Scherzer. The name on the jersey is going to be the guy that's going to show up in the playoffs. Mm -hmm. Guys, his stuff did not look good in game three. And maybe you're going to be on the optimistic side of, well, you know, that was the tune-up start for Max Scherzer. It's Max Scherzer. Yeah, no, I don't want to do that. This is game seven. The best words in baseball that you can hear is it's game seven. It also means you could be going home if Max Scherzer looks like Max Scherzer from the last game. I would probably be going with a bullpen game. I think they're going to treat this like a bullpen game, but I am curious to see how much of a leash Bruce Bochy's going to get him. I would probably just go bullpen game. I, so I would not throw Scherzer in this That's one. what I wanted to ask you. What's the alternative? Like, if you didn't go with Scherzer here, then you would do what as your starter? I would probably... Because their bullpen has not... It, it's not very great. It's not very deep, at least. The back end is really good, but the, the actual bullpen itself does not have a lot of length to it. Yeah, they are in a tough spot. They are in a spot in which it is... I think the pitching is going to show itself tonight to where they just didn't have enough to get through this series because I'm looking to see what they did in game three. So they went Bradford to start things off. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's probably what I would have done. But I, he's not very good. I mean, he didn't allow a run in his last appearance. I, I understand. So like, but like, If you're going Cody Scherzer's Bradford, not the, same the guy, guy that I said the Cardinals should trade for as a number five starter, and everybody agreed that guy's not good enough yeah. for the Cardinals as I'll their number five Scherzer. starter. It's an opener for the Rangers. And I, th- I mean, I think that's just how Scherzer's they're going to approach it. I think this is how they're going to approach it, though, with Scherzer. The thing Agreed. that I'm, the I thing I, we'll the thing that. I fear, though, is that Bochy's going to go. I don't have a better alternative, so I've got to continue to ride Max Scherzer. And if that's the case, like no matter what the solution was, then you're going to lose the series. Like I, me going with an opener, they probably lose because they don't what? have a deep enough ball. Here's and I get it. I understand it's Game Seven and you can't do this, but like BK said, you have no other option. And frankly, you make the trade. You're paying this guy. I'll go down with it. That's like, why I would go to him. Yeah, I go down with Max Scherzer. Like, yeah, I know he hasn't been healthy and he's been out, and it's a bold strategy here. But I'd rather do that. Then not pitch Max Scherzer and go somebody for an inning and then go a bullpen game the rest of the way and lose that way. See, like I look at the other options. Like you want to go Dane Dunning? All right, fine. Like that's that didn't go well for them so far in this series either. Um, you want to go Cody Bradford? Okay, fine. But he's not a guy that gets swing and miss. I don't love the idea of him going up against the Astros for the third time in the last week and then being able to see him once again. But if you want to go that route, okay, but he could probably get you like three outs. You feel good about that. Andrew Heaney, you want to go back-to-back with him after he's been a starter for almost the entire season? Okay. Um, I didn't love using him last night. I would have saved him for today. I don't know what he's going to respond like in a back-to-back type of a situation because this is a guy that's mostly been a starter in his career. I think Martin Perez is a guy that can give you a couple of innings. So you've got options but the best option is still Max Scherzer. <laughs> like, the best option is still going with the guy that's going to make the Hall of Fame, that's going to gut it out. I do agree with you here. You cannot treat this like it's vintage Max Scherzer. If he gets into trouble in the, the third inning, pull Yank him. him. Pull him. And go to your bullpen in that spot. Go to a high-leverage reliever there to be able to shut that thing down and then open up the next inning, a clean inning, 
with Andrew Heaney and then open up maybe one or two innings later with Martin Perez. And then maybe you go get three outs with Cody Bradford. Like you can piece this thing together in a way that ultimately makes sense. But I think that what we're seeing from this series is that the Rangers just don't have enough good options in their rotation. They tried. They tried to sign Jacob deGrom. They tried to go out and trade for a healthy at the time, Max Scherzer. It just hasn't come together the way that anybody could have expected. And I think they had enough pitching. The issue was it got hurt in September because John Gray was pitching really well coming into the playoffs. Or, excuse me, in the regular season, and then he got hurt. Same with Max Scherzer. Scherzer had been okay with the Texas Rangers, but he got hurt and he had the long layoff. That's the thing that's killed them is they're trying to stretch out guys that just can't be stretched out now. They basically have had two starters that are in the Steven Matz role, and Scherzer's one of them, where it was – hey, can this guy really give us innings? Is his stuff going to be as crisp? And they said, well, it doesn't matter because we kind of have to do this. We don't have enough. They've got like five starters on their um, playoff roster that are in their bullpen. Perez, Bradford, uh, Heaney, as we've mentioned. Uh, John Gray's in the bullpen as well. So, like, they've got four starters that are in their bullpen right now. I think six of their seven postseason wins have come with either Evaldi or Montgomery as their starter on the mound. Yeah. Like, what I mean by that, what I'm saying by that is, like, they relied heavily on those two guys. And now you're in a game where they're probably not available for you in any capacity. Like, I, you definitely can't go back to Evaldi. Maybe you can push it with Montgomery where maybe he can get you like three outs as a bullpen day type of a situation. I think Montgomery will take the ball if you give it to him. Um, maybe that's one of the X factors going into this one. Maybe Montgomery ends up being the guy that you look back at this series and say to yourself, hot damn, if they didn't have that dude, there'd be no chance that they're sitting in the World Series. Yeah, and my whole pushback on the idea of starting Scherzer, and you guys are probably going to disagree with this or not, the the whole idea of starting Scherzer, I, I get it because it's the name on the back of the jersey. My fear is that's what plays into the decision-making. Of If you're Bruce Bochy, you go, yeah, it's Max Scherzer. Do I really go get that guy in the third when he's given up just two runs? No, so, and that's where he can ruin it. If you sit there and say, well, Max Scherzer, he's given up five hits through two innings and he gave up a run, but we got nothing else and it's Max Scherzer, that's where you lose me. That's where you make the bad decision if you don't pull him and he looks bad. This is one of those games where people aren't going to like it the meetings before the game where you script things out, that is how you can win or lose this game. That's analytics, BK. I, I know, like whether you want to call it analytics information, you want to call it just like game planning, whatever you want to call it, that is how the Rangers have to prepare for this one. Like you have to prepare as if you're getting an inning out of Max Scherzer. And the more that he gives you, the better it is because the fewer arms you have to go to that aren't your high leverage guys. But you got to prepare for it as if you're getting three outs from him. And then you see what it looks like from there. So I, it's an interesting game. I've got the Astros in this one. I, I just think the pitching is so much in favor of them going into this specific game. I mean, it's one game. Anything can happen. Who knows? Baseball's weird. But I like the Astros to win this one. Which side do you guys like? I like the Astros. I, I think they just blitz Houston, in the, or excuse me, they blitz Texas in this one. Hey, road I, teams won every game so far in yeah, this series. I think that changes I think, tonight. I think so, too. I go Rangers, actually. I think when you get a game six victory like that to force game seven when you felt like you were down and out, I think you're going to get the best of the Texas Rangers. In the other series tonight, you've got the Diamondbacks traveling back to Philadelphia. Yeah, that uh, one's over. Philly is, is leading the series three games yeah, to two. I will give over. a lot of credit to the Diamondbacks, I didn't think that they were going to be able to get back into the series at all. I thought this was going to be either a sweep or a five-game set. The Diamondbacks at least made it respectable. So kudos to them for that. Good job, little buddy. Noel we'll on the mound tonight. Like, I fully anticipate this is the night that the Philadelphia Phillies are able to How get much does done. his contract go up after he deals tonight? 
I don't think it's going up. At this point, I think everybody's just acknowledged, like, hey, the guy's a big game pitcher. He's everything you could ask for. He takes the ball every fifth day. He puts up crazy amounts of innings. He's really good within those innings. That guy's a legit number two starter. If you want him to start a game one for you, he can. I think everybody's in agreement now. There's no more questions. He's a $30 million area pitcher. Did, uh, did Mo invite Gersh over tonight with their scuba gear sitting in front of the television yeah, watching this? Yeah, cool. He'll be scuba Steve ne- sitting next to the it's television. Steve, damn you! Who do you guys like in this one? Phillies? Yeah, it's over. I actually think D-backs four scheme seven. Get the hell out of here. I think it's close. Here. I think it's like a 2-1 pitching duel. Be because fun. Merrill Kelly's been really good. I know we're talking a ton about Aaron Nola. Merrill Kelly's get one and one with the three ERA. In the Didn't playoffs. he get lit up in the first game against Phillies? Though he only allowed three hits, and they happened to all leave the yard. So like, oh, he only. Was, like he was really good. The problem was like the, <laughs> the home run ball. Just, yeah, the Dynamax that was played in slug. Philly. So I, I think the Dynamax can win this one. Turns I think they out seven. the Phillies are really good at hitting home runs. <laughs> no, especially with their left-handed it's bats. Good, it's a good thing Tyler O'Neill is just as good as Bryce Harper. Yeah, you ain't lying. All right, final thing here before we get to the juncture on the other side. Alex, you see the story? What story? Speaking of Hall of Fame managers for the uh, the Rangers, with Bruce oh Bochy. Oh, you must be talking about Mike Schilt. There might be another one that's added to the bench in uh, San Diego. So the Padres have, this is the weirdest way to go about firing a manager that I've ever seen. <laughs> they have allowed Bob Melvin to interview for the Giants open managerial position. In other words, they're saying, yeah, 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 Bob, no, 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 go ahead. Go ahead, guys. It's, it's cool. You can go ahead and. Interview yeah. for that job. Guys, I don't want to interview for the job. No, Just no, 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 no. Go, go. Whenever you get back here, if you didn't get that job, this job no longer exists <laughs> yeah, for you. Don't mind that your office has been cleared out. Yeah. The Padres have fired Bob Melvin, more or less, and he's going to end up getting the Giants gig. Every single national report seems to indicate this Padres job is going to go to one of two people, both of whom are internal, which makes a lot of sense considering your organization has been a catastrophic failure over the last couple of seasons because of internal failures, but neither here nor there. One of them, Ryan Flaherty, he's a very young guy. He kind of is in the ilk of what they've typically gone with um, under Preller as the general manager there. Very young, very inexperienced, but people seem to like him. The other is one Mike Schilt, who is none of the things that I just mentioned. He is not particularly young. He is not inexperienced at all. I think Mike Schilt should be considered the favorite to get this job, Alex. Do you think he gets things turned around there if he gets it? If he does, it's a, for a quick time. I, I Like sustaining with that roster and from what we saw with Mike Schilt, like Mike Schilt's old school, man. I don't know how that works with a Manny Machado and a Fernando Tatis Jr. and a Juan Soto if he's still there. I think Mike Schilt can get the best out of that team in the first year. But if we're talking years two, three, four, I think it goes south quick. Yeah, I I mean, I think either guy's set up to fail in that job, but I actually think it's going to be Flaherty that gets the job um, because I think he's not old school. And I don't think they need, I think old, like I think Mike Schilt getting that job, like he may have success in year one, I, but I'm skeptical of that because like, look at what the issues they dealt with pitching this year. They had to get creative with that. You think mm-hmm. Mike Schilt's doing that? I like he, he didn't show any willingness to go to openers when he was here Matt in Carpenter St. Louis. Carpenter is going to play so much for San Diego yeah. next oh season. Oh my gosh. Like he is going to be starting at first base every game. Can I tell you why I'm excited about this? Because you want to be friends with Mike Schilt again. I think he would trade for Dylan Carlson. I think some of the guys... Yeah, unless that, he's given us Juan Soto for him, I don't think it matters. They've got some pitching. They do. They've got some pitching, and they need to get rid of some money. So if you want... if You, you Darvish for uh, Dylan Carlson? Sure. Ooh. I'd do it. I would take on that contract. Mike Schilt. Their, their GMs would be like, Mike, we're not trading him for you Dylan Carlson. You want to trade Carlson. Joe Musgrove? Come on home. 
I know you're from about, San Diego, but you're Tatis new home Jr. How about Tatis Jr.? I'll take him. <laughs> Terrible really? contract. Oh. No yeah, clearly, he was amazing this year. <laughs> I think it'll go really well in year one for Mike Schilt. If he ends up getting that job, and I, I would still lean on the like betting favorite, I think, is Mike Schilt, for me at least. Um, I, I think he would do really, really well in year one, and I think San Diego would clean things up defensively. I think he would be one of the guys that would move uh, Bogarts over to first base or second base. I think he would have Hassan Kim being that shortstop for them, and I think that helps a lot. I think you would see them in the playoffs again in 2024. The problem is long-term, I don't think there's a whole lot of ways to keep this thing on the tracks. I think long-term, you're going to still have the same issues that you were going to have no matter who the manager was. But next year, it'd be amazing if next year Mike Schilt has a lot of success in San Diego with the Padres. Yadier Molina is the bench coach here in St. Louis. Skip potentially still has some success down in Miami. Whoa, buddy. You want to talk about a Thunderdome here in St. Louis if things go off track, off the tracks. I thought you were going to say the perfect scenario where Mike Schilt and the Padres knock out the Cardinals on the road in the wild card round in two games. Man, if only they didn't have philosophical differences. Coming up next, let's dive into the junk drawer here on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Let's open it up. The junk drawer with BK and Ferrario. Brought to you by Fenton Bar and Grill. Best trashed wings in Missouri. Dine in. Carry out. Seven days a week. for you what's the strangest thing that you've done to help your uh, daughters go to bed what i mean by that is like are they asking you for reading a weird bedtime story are, are you when they were younger were you like going on a car ride to make sure they fell asleep what are the things that you've had to do because i know every new parent has some of these experiences so, so i've done two which are pretty odd one was when we were just on vacation in michigan adelaide our oldest she was She's in that phase now where, like, if we're on a vacation, she just is in play mode and doesn't want to go to bed. Because at home, we, we put her in her room and we lock the door and we let her go to sleep. Lock the door? Well, yeah, because now she, like, opens it and comes out and runs around. Next thing you know, she's in the basement p- banging on stuff. Um, and so I had to, like, put her in the car in Michigan, and we drove for, like, 45 minutes. Jeez. I think I drove to, like, Grand Rapids, <laughs> Michigan or something to get her to sleep. Uh, but the, the craziest one was... Also, Adelaide, when we transitioned from her crib to a bed and she wouldn't sleep. And so I had to sleep on the floor next to her bed. And when she was asleep, I had to do the the army crawl on all four (laughs) out, making sure that my kid didn't like turn into the exorcist like get back, daddy. It worked, though. So So the reason why I ask is because this is a news story that comes out of Charlotte, North Carolina. A young girl in North Carolina reportedly had a unique request for a bedtime story. This girl's name is Megan. Uh, She was on TikTok after reading an unconventional bedtime story. Instead of the usual children's books requested by her child, the three-year-old girl asked her mother to read aloud the instructional manual for the family's iced coffee machine. The video has since been viewed thousands of times with more than 2,500 comments. Amazing. I don't need this. <laughs> if Luca starts asking me to read the instruction manual for the iced coffee machine. Oh, 
we got to have a talk. Look, man. we got to have a talk. My daughter wants me to read everything to her. She's picked up the manual from the toilet that we bought to install in our bathroom. Really? And it's like, Daddy, read. I'm like, I'm not reading you a toilet manual. See, that's that's where I'll say, Luca, we've got a hundred books in this room. They're all over. The, the bed is at the, or the, the bedroom at this point is like tearing apart at the seam because of just books everywhere. Let's find one of those. That is better than the iced coffee machine instructional. Uh, maybe your reasoning was you're like, dude, I don't understand how this works at all. Like, I don't get it. I'm not a handyman. I'm sorry, Luke. Go talk Somebody to Somebody on the text line said, my youngest once uh, asked us to put her in the car seat on the dryer instead of driving. That what? was the move. I've heard people do that. Really? It, it makes it, sense. It vibrates. Just a little bit of movement. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That's why I we got a, that. we got a swing with Emma when she was born. Like She would go to sleep so easy, and like any motion, that kid would just like... Out cold. Somebody asked me to read Luca analytics so that oh, way he, he does. can go to sleep. All right, Luca. Now I'm going to give you the spreadsheet as to why the manager should always pull the pitcher from the fourth inning. It's X first and Wobe. This is why against. your kid thinks you're boring. The third time through the order, we got to talk about this, Luca. There is a clear disadvantage, a decided disadvantage for the pitcher when he faces that hitter for Luca, the third time. This is a high danger scoring chance. This is a <laughs> scoring chance. The Blues can't make these shots happen. The latest one yesterday, I was talking to him about the unstoppable force that is the push tush. Mm-hmm. Or the tush push, excuse me. That is something very different. (laughs) That book you only find in Spencer's. Alongside Alex and T-Bone, I'm BK. You got BK and Ferrario here on 101 ESPN. Coming up in about 15 minutes or so, we will reveal the the results from our Pick'em Challenge. Do we have to? Can we just put these all into one? Yeah. Like, (laughs) super cut? Be too long. Okay. Super cut. Guess we'll uh, throw them into individual. Yippee! They all had the same results, so we'll yeah. get into that coming up at 115. But next, the Blues are winning. They're putting up points. Can they sustain this over the long haul, though? I think there's one way they can. We'll tell you what that is next year on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast, presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. I think it's a system where it's more about worrying about defending the middle of the ice than the outside part of the ice and chasing it around the board. So, so far, I think the trend is you will give up some more shots. And talking to some of the players, they said, yeah, we'll give up a few more shots, but they'll be able to block more. They'll be able to make sure Jordan Bennington sees more of the pucks and make saves. So more of a concern is the lack of shots for the St. Louis Blues. But I would expect to see, you know, on average, it wouldn't surprise me to see the Blues this season, you know, average 31 to 33 shots on goal against. That is the voice of Chris Kerber. He joined the morning show earlier today talking about whether or not what the Blues are doing right now is what we should be expecting from them the rest of the way. He thinks this is kind of the way they're going to have to play, Alex. This is the way that the team is constructed. They're going to get out chance. They're going to get out shot. And that might just be something they have to live with. Now, that being said, so far this year, man, they've received points in three of their four games. It's hard to argue with the results. The question is, can you sustain this over the long haul? In any four-game sample size, you can win. You can. Any team can put together a really solid four-game stretch. 
Can you do so consistently over the course of 80 plus games? That's the question for the Blues. Alex, when you look at the way that they've gone about it so far this year, where they have been outshot at five on five in every single game, most of the time being outshot by at least 10, when they've been outchanced in every game so far this year, if you're looking at high danger shots, the only game in which they have had more high danger chances than their opponent at five on five, surprisingly enough, is the game against the Arizona Coyotes, where they had seven, the Coyotes had six. Again, that's five-on-five high-danger chances. Is what they're doing sustainable in terms of winning over the long haul in your mind? Yes, as long as Jordan Bennington stays to this level. They go this season as far as Jordan Bennington is going to carry them on his shoulders. And I'll put Joel Hofer into this too because he's going to get more starts, and I don't expect them to be like they were against the Arizona Coyotes. But your season is solely dictated off of your goaltending. That's why they're going with this scheme. One, it's familiar with a lot of their defensemen, specifically Nick Letty, Tori Krug. But two, it benefits them because they know their strength is Jordan Bennington. If he can see the puck, if the shots are coming from the outside, if they're not giving up the backdoor tap-ins or the extra second, third, fourth shots in front of the net, Jordan Bennington's going to make those stops. And if that's how this season goes, then they're going to be successful. That's the thing. Like, I understand after a game and you look at it and you say, wow, I gave up 35 shots on goal. But if you look at the shots that were given up, how many were in the slot? How many were underneath the faceoff dots or how many of them were from the outside because that's what the blues are really focusing on it's not so much of being this stingy defense that don't allow teams to shoot the puck it's more of fine take your shot from the faceoff dot fine take your shot from the far side wing bennington's got that we're making sure you don't get in front of jordan bennington we're making sure that those second and third chances the power forwards the screens the deflections that those don't happen but look I'm not going to be sitting here acting like Jordan Bennington is going to win a Vezina this year. I got to see it in November and December and frankly, January. If he breaks, then the season is going to break. But if Bennington plays this way, and frankly, it does come down to your defensive scheme. If that falls apart, then the season is going to be a lost season. But if the scheme can keep it to the outside and block shots and Bennington stays on the top of his game in terms of those medium high danger scoring chances, you're going to be fine. Over the last four seasons, Jordan Bennington allowed an average of 2.93 goals against on average. That's basically the entire Jordan Bennington career thus far. He's at 2.93. If he allows an average of three goals per game, the Blues are in bad shape. That That's my honest-to-God opinion because the, I don't know that they're going to be able to score on average more than three goals per game this year. So far this year, he's at 1.2. He doesn't need to stay there. But if he continues to stay below like two and a half... I think what they're doing might be sustainable, but that is what it requires. And it's asking a lot, dude, for him to be able to continue playing this well. Jordan Bennington is playing like one of the best goaltenders in the NHL so far this year. Like he has been unbelievable. But in terms of goals, goals saved above average, that's the s- statistic that we heard Greg Wyshynski, uh reference what last week yeah. when he was on with us two weeks ago over the last two seasons. He has been below average in that regard. And last year he was horrible in goals saved above average. This year, he's the best in the league at it. He has saved more goals on average than the average goaltender in the NHL compared to anybody else in the league. That is amazing, and he deserves to be commended for that. My concern, my question about the team moving forward is, can he continue to do that? If he has one bad game, or if the defense allows one bad game where you're getting some more of those odd man rushes going against, as we have seen at times this year, 
does the damn break? And then mentally he gets into a place where he's like, man, I, I don't know that I can keep doing this all the time. Every game they're asking me to be a brick wall back here. Mentally, that has to be exhausting. Physically, it's going to be draining. So I will be curious to see as we get into November and then certainly as you get into the December and January months where it becomes even more of a grind and you're getting through right now the Western Canada trip that's always a tough one for the Blues. What does it look like then? That is something that I'm going to be monitoring for sure. I think the rest of the team, this might have to be the way that they play. It just asks a ton from your goaltender to make this work long term. And I don't I don't think this can work long term because you're not generating enough offense. And though, sure, they're doing a good job defensively right now. At some point, though, it's not just going to be this scheme either. That's going to be the difference maker. Their penalty kills the worst in the NHL. Their power plays the worst in the NHL. The power plays should be where they're making up for their lack of offense five on five, and they're not doing that right now. And if the PK is going to have its issues, you, then that's going to. It doesn't matter what the scheme is because if you're giving up two goals on on the on the penalty kill in a game, well then okay, how are you going to make up for that offensively? Like I, I think the scheme I think could a, work. A lot of that is skewed though because of the game against the Coyotes, and that goes back to the the. Bennington decision. Yeah, that discussion. game against the Coyotes, that's why their penalty kill was so bad. Power play, I agree with you, it's awful, but the penalty kill dropped significantly because you gave up three power play goals they, in that but game. Bennington has allowed one p- power play goal so far this year. He's been your best penalty killer. I think that shows it. Like, the penalty kill is working because Bennington has been amazing. Again, that is requiring a lot out of him. Can he continue to do that over the course of the season? I don't know. And, and I hope so. Right now, they feel like a team that is just like, let's just survive three periods. And I don't think you can win that way in the NHL. Like, it is just kind of clamped down, just suck in. We're going to block as many shots. We're going to clog the middle. It's slugfest hockey. I don't think you can continue to win like this, especially in the modern era of the NHL. I don't think it's can we survive. I think it's it's we're focusing on the defense and know our offense is going to get their opportunities. And it can survive. The problem is you're going to have to suck it up for 82 games. You're going to have to stay healthy. You're going to have to have guys who stay committed to it, especially if one game goes poorly. Are they going to stay committed to the same scheme the next game? Blocking shots, making sure that you're focusing on the defensive side because, look, everybody's going to get antsy every once in a while and say, no, no, I'm going to try and take this opportunity and get some offense in games. It's not going to work. Frankly, I feel like that happened against the Arizona Coyotes where they thought they could get some opportunities with odd man rushes. It can sustain mostly because they're not just playing this oh we score one goal and we're playing defensive hockey the the way that they're going about this is for three periods you're gonna have to earn it to score a goal on Jordan Bennington whether get through our defense or get past Jordan Bennington and offensively we're going to wait until you make the mistake I'll never forget the year that they won the cup was that Chad Johnson era backup goaltender before Bennington got called up and he was with the Buffalo Sabres for like five years prior to it and I, I was talking with him in the first portion of the season, and I asked why he wanted to play in St. Louis. And he was like, look, I remember playing against this team, and they bore the hell out of you, even as a goaltender on the other side. They're not getting a lot of shots on goal. Connor Ingram with Arizona, you saw those comments afterwards that said, I didn't have to do anything in that game. That was a really terrible game. That was game. a terrible game. But what Chad Johnson said was that's how they always play. You maybe get 22 shots on goal in a game and you're thinking, geez, when am I going to get actually some work? But then next thing you know, you'd look up at the scoreboard at the end of the night and they scored three goals on you because it was power play, it was shorthanded, or it was a breakaway that you got. They're going to bore the opposition, but it all comes down to sticking to the scheme. Yeah, I I just don't know if you can do that over 82. I, I hope that you can. And I'm... I once again want to make sure that people don't hear this incorrectly or that I'm not saying it incorrectly. Maybe is a better way to phrase it. 
what they have done so far in getting three three games where they've received points. Every game that Bennington's been in net, you've got a point. Yeah. That's a great start to the season. This is in no way taking away from anything they've accomplished thus far. It's really a question of, yo, are you, are you going to try to win games consistently two to one, three to two? And I think the answer to that question appears to be yes. I that's a really hard way to win in the NHL, especially right now with so many teams that have these great goal scorers around the league. It's winning rock fights. It's like trying to win the way that Iowa does in college football. You can do it. It's clearly worked at Iowa for a decade now with really 20 years with Kirk Ferentz in charge. We've seen the Islanders ride this thing all the way to a Stanley Cup appearance. Like it has worked in the NHL before. I I just find it to be very difficult to believe that you can maintain this level of performance. And so to me, it requires something to increase. It requires your power play to take off in a way that we haven't seen thus far. It requires your five-on-five offense to improve in a way that is relatively dramatic. Like, something has to change for me to believe that this is going to be able to sustain over the course of 82. The defense, like, you can probably play this way and continue to give up two to three goals on average. I could see that. The problem is if you continue to play this way defensively and you're giving up this many shots and you're not being able to go and create offense regularly in the offensive zone, it's going to be really hard to be able to put up three-plus goals on a night-to-night basis. So it, it it's hard to win that way. So that's that's where my concern comes in, and it really comes back to what you talked about at the beginning of the season. Can you get the power play right. going? And, and well, they have to. They're going to have to break up those power play units. But I mean, they went with the same ones again. I think it was actually Saad playing up there now instead of Kapanen. You need to put Verona on that power play. Yeah. You have no one-time threat on that power play. Yeah, and, and I, I think the thing about this system and the way it works is, at least in a period of every game, it felt like, maybe not the Pittsburgh game, but in the three prior, is there's a formula to beating the Blues. And the formula is, all right, if you're just going to sit there and be compact, we're just going to wear you down in your zone. And then if you do get the puck, you can't do anything offensively. That's what happened in that Arizona game, was they just just kept them in their own zone, hemmed them in their own yep. zone. And then by the time they did get the puck, we can't generate anything offensively. So what do you do? you got to dump, you got to change lines, and then here they come again, and yeah, you're they, stuck back in your own zone again. But they didn't dump and get the pucks back, and that was the problem in the well, offensive zone. Well, they could they were too exhausted. Well, yes, that's also it, but I also, line change. I also think that the problem was the Blues started out that way, where they, there was, they would just skate in, take a shot, and it would come back the other way, where that Pittsburgh game, and again, it's against Pittsburgh, and they're slower. What does this look like when you take on fast teams? But you would put it in, and you would out-muscle. They would, this was, Steve Ott told Curbs and Joey this on Thursday after that game, and he said, we had no 10-foot support. Meaning, when one guy would go after the puck, there, were, there was not another player on their team within 10 feet of that. And that's what they preach. It's 10-foot support. That Pittsburgh Penguins game, every time one guy was on a puck, there were two other Blues with them. That's what you didn't do against Arizona. And that's where it was... Yeah, and that's where it was more bought into what they were trying to accomplish. And if they play that lackadaisical where the pucks are just flung all over the place, if you've got no possession and you're not winning any battles, yeah, you're going to lose that game every single night. There was one other thing that I wanted to get to. This comes from the 618. We'll get to our football pick and reveal in about 10 minutes or in just a minute or so. Uh, People complained last year when the defense was bad. Now they are all in on defense, and just like when the Cardinals went all in on defense when Schilt was here and had gold glovers all over the field, people asked if there was going to be more offense. This will become a flip. Uh, will this flip win for the Blues? That is TBD. I, I don't think this is a fair comparison to what Mike Schilt did. I think people 
have had revisionist history with Mike Schilt. Mike Schilt got their best defenders on the field. The, the difference with Mike Schilt was that he prioritized defense by getting good defenders out there. It wasn't as if the same players that were previously really bad at defense were continuing to play. No, he got them out of the lineup or in the offseason, they went and got like, you know, Paul Goldschmidt, who seemed to help with a lot of what was going wrong at first base for them. So I, I'll just never win that argument because people look at it and they're like, one year we were bad, the next year we were good. Mike Schilt was the thing that changed. Yeah, but there were other changes as well, neither here nor there. The Blues, the reason why I think it's different is because they went from all in on offense to all in on defense, and it's a stylistic change. It is a schematic change. So it's really hard to compare that to baseball because it's just completely different in the way that the game is actually played, where now the puck is going to be in your own zone more often because of the way that you play. So... I don't really know how to compare. I the think two. the one thing too, that people are forgetting is it's not, we're not expecting a Stanley cup run this season. Like this is a transition year with a lot of these players, specifically on the forward side. Like, yeah, you've got Cairo and Thomas and Buchnevich and Shen. Like those are the core pieces of it. But like, Verona might not be here after this season. Like Hayes was but brought see, my, into my question with the scheme. Cause I understand where you're going is, do I ever find out in this scheme if Thomas and Cairo take the next step? Well, and that's going to be the that's biggest problem question. with this. If they don't take the step with this, then I think two things happen. One, you look for more offense for this team, or you get a different coach. And that's my concern, is if you go down that path, well, then that brings up a whole new problem. But if you go down the path of finding out offense, like this is what we've talked about. Do they stick with Pavel Buchnevich beyond his contract? Or do they go out there and try and find somebody who is more offensively inclined? Because you've got pieces in place of guys who can play this scheme. You've got younger players that you're hoping provide offense in the next couple of years, the Bulldukes, the Snuggeroods. The question is all about do our top players play the top player-esque? What T-Bone just asked is a really interesting question. Because to me, it feels it, like right now the way this is set up is like trying to figure out what I have in a rookie quarterback while I'm running the football all the time. And so it never makes sense. Why are you paying $8 million for players that could play the same exact roles in the same exact team for $4 million? I think is the real question to be asked here is, are you, are you, but I think they're overcompensating for your problem defensively. I hear you, but that's not changing. Like these players aren't going to suddenly become good defenders. Yeah, I know Thomas and Cairo are who they are as players and you paid them $8 million to be those players. The question to me long-term with this style of play are you going to be able to extract $16 million worth of production out of those guys if you are playing this way? Because this feels like a hamburger reduction, like you smash it all together and it becomes hamburger, right? No matter what kind of meat you use, it's still a hamburger. It, are we getting the best version of those two players by playing this way? I genuinely don't know the answer to that question, but I do find it to be interesting. And it kind of reminds me of like the Atlanta Falcons, right? Who have Kyle Pitts and uh, Drake London, who's a first round wide receiver, and they're playing this smash mouth style football yeah. without a quarterback. And it's like, okay, cool. It's winning. It's working right now. Did it make any sense to get those guys in the top 10 picks of the first round? If you're not going to utilize them in a way that actually extracts the value from them, because if the answer is no, then we should have just added like defensive players or offensive linemen with those picks because it helps us with our team building process. If you're going to continue playing this way, does it make sense to have $17 million put towards two players that are basically being asked to be top-line versions of Jakub Vrana and Kevin Hayes, who you're paying $3 million. And, and that's for. where I probably wasn't clear. I think they're overcompensating those guys because of their defensemen problem. 
that's where I think we're not seeing the best of those guys because the focus is solely on trying to fix this defensive problem because you've got this, these liability players on the defenseman side. I wonder if that changes as seasons go on and you start to see some of those contracts disappear and other players who can play a little bit tighter defensively in front of their goaltender. That's where those guys can take a little bit more risks in their game because right now it feels like the emphasis is on, hey, you guys have to get back on defense. You can't spend time in the offensive zone because we got to make sure that what last year was stays last year and not this year. Whereas two years from now, if you're able to move on from a couple of contracts or a couple of guys walk in free agency and you bring in a Noah Hannafin or some guys develop into somebody who could be in your top four, now you get a little bit closer into what this team is trying to accomplish. Ultimately, what they care about, they've got points in three of the four games. Yeah. So, so far this year, if that continues, they're going to say it's all worth it. If they continue to win, hey man, it's kind of hard to argue with the results. But if that doesn't sustain, if the underlying numbers and the numbers nerds end up being correct about this team, that's where the questions will start to be asked of, is this really the right way to play long-term? I, I don't know. Right now, I don't know. Anybody can have a definitive answer one way or the other, but that's what the rest of this season is going to be all about. For Alex and T-Bone, I'm BK. Coming up next, we'll get to our football, football pick'em reveal. Don't worry, this ain't going to take long. Next, you're on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the BK and Ferrario podcast, presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Alongside Alex and T-Bone on BK, just wanted to go ahead and throw this one out there from the 314. BK, just wanted to say thanks. I had a horrible week in the Fast Lane Pick'em Challenge, but you picked two NFL games this week, which allowed me to go against your NFL picks, so at least I ended up getting those correct. Well, sir, madam, first of all, thanks for listening to the show. Second of all, you're very welcome. And third of all, Go kick rocks. Um, our Whoa. football pick em reveal True. is uh, something that we really don't look forward to ever. But this is the worst one ever. I mean, this is an all-time performance. If you had simply gone against us in every single one of our picks, boy, howdy, would you have made a bunch of money this week, Alex? So let's go ahead and reveal some of the picks from this week. Let's start out with what looked like a pretty obvious one. Bills on the road at the hapless New England Patriots. Alex, how'd this one go? This is a little bit bigger of a spread than I like, but I think the team that is the underdog in this sucks. So I'm taking Buffalo minus eight and a half. Fake the handoff. Allen on first down. Uncorks it. Intercepted. Jabril Peppers. The Bills turn it over. First play from scrimmage. That's your two-point pick. pisses me off so much i knew i hate eight and a half point spreads i hate them but i'm like buffalo camp it's new england and mac jones out here looking like an mvp against that team like what the hell it's on you for believing in josh allen you knew it's not on me it's on (laughs) it was a matter of time man it's always a matter of time before josh allen screws you in one way or another i just did it i ended up doing a teaser yesterday where you get to like add six points or whatever it is you tease it well I uh, ended up losing that one right off the bat. Good. All right, the next one up is uh, another pick that Alex decided to make. Why are we only doing my picks? <laughs> I thought this was actually a pretty good selection, Alex. You got one team without their starting quarterback, another one that apparently doesn't have a starting quarterback, True. but a defense that's really good. Here we go. 
game that I was skeptical about, but now I'm reading that he's throwing, but I don't even care if Deshaun Watson plays. Cleveland minus three against Indianapolis. That defense has been so good. Minshew from his end zone. Here comes Uh Garrett. Football's loose. Who's got it? Cleveland. It's still loose. No signal yet. Touchdown. How is it possible that Miles Garrett can strip two two footballs for fumbles, block a punt, and your team still gives up 39 bleeping points? Sear against Gardner Minshew. The, The Indianapolis Colts turned the football over four times. And put up 38 points against the Cleveland Browns. Yeah, this whole this whole BS of, oh, the Cleveland Browns are one of the best defenses in the game right now. Statistically cool, but that means nothing now. As BK would say, go kick rocks, Cleveland. Right, so 0 for 2 there. Alex, your final pick is? My one-point play, I'm going to go to the Sunday night game. This game's going to be awesome. me. I think Miami's a better team, though. And I, it's a close spread, wow. so I'm going to be willing to take this one. I, I like the Dolphins plus two and a half at Philly. I hate to be the, the repeat, but that was the one-point play for me, too. It was Miami plus two and a half. I, I have not been impressed with Philadelphia, and I don't see anything that tells me it's going to get any better. Sweep it. It was also my one-point play Son as well. Son of a... And it's Gainwell. That's why I was angry. Hey, man. Sometimes you just got to tip your cap. Philadelphia was awesome last night. They flat out in every way possible beat up on the Miami Dolphins. I should have known, man. It's late October going up to Philadelphia, a finesse style Dolphins team going up to play that smash mouth Philadelphia team with great offensive and defensive lines. That's on me. I I didn't put enough credence into that. I was just getting excited about Tyreek Hill and Jalen Waddle and look at this offense. Yeah, it's it's not going to work against the uh, the Eagles. So. Yeah, well, now I'm done with Miami. Live together, die together. We went down. The three amigos. So 0 for 3 for Alex. That was also the one-point play for T-Bone. It was a one-point play for me last night. It was my last opportunity uh, to get a game because the previous night I was trusting in my next pick is going to be Duke plus 14 and a half. (laughs) Oh, yes, that's a loss. The Duke Blue Devils are expected to get their starting quarterback in the lineup once again this weekend. I don't think they win this game outright. I absolutely think that they can keep this thing absolutely. close enough that they'll be absolutely. within two touchdowns. Coleman comes in motion. Travis retreats. It's a screen. Toafili. Toafili touchdown. First of all, both of you go to hell. They were up 20 to 17 at the end of the third quarter. That's and absolutely a win. I was, I was sitting over here like, oh. Here we go. Yeah, you were drunk I, at that time. I, yeah, <laughs> I was hammered. Uh, I had my two-point play. I was feeling good about it. The Duke Blue Devils on the road in Tallahassee getting things done. Uh-uh. Then the quarterback gets hurt. They go forward on fourth down with their backup quarterback. A terrible play call, by the way. They knew at the moment, hey, we're not going to be able to move the ball anymore, so let's go ahead and try to score a touchdown here. Yeah. I get the call. Just ended up going horribly wrong for them, and from that point on, FSU just absolutely dominated them. I'm not sure that Duke had another like 20 yards the rest of the way. Once Riley left, Riley Leonard left that game. They had no chance. Their backup quarterback was one for six for seven yards. Game I, blouses. They lose by 18. I would just stop just using such demo, such demonstrative words of absolutely and for sure and definitely. Those don't work well for you. I bet he didn't use any of those in this next pick. I bet, I bet he, he used it. all three. <laughs> Let's hear it. My final pick, oh, yeah. T-Bone, my kiss of death. 
I love the Rams this weekend. Oh. Minus the three points against the Steelers. Somebody Sorry, explain this one to me. Oh, there, there it is. Somebody explain it. I'm a Rams fan. I didn't want to touch this game with a 100-foot pole. They just got the snap off. They got it to Harris. Pittsburgh's got the lead. It's funny how both you in the past and you in the current said, oh, there it is. Guess what? Me in the future on Friday, I'm going to say the yeah, exact same thing probably. to him. Puka Nakua. Stud. Was targeted 12 times in this game. Puka. He had eight receptions for 155 yards and was completely dominant from the moment that the game started. Cooper Cup finished with two touches hmm. for 29 yards. You gave the ball to Royce Freeman and Daryl Henderson. Oh, Henderson's it combined back. 31 times. Against what is one of the best front sevens in the NFL. We like the match. What are you there. doing? Questioning one of the best coaches in the game yeah. and Sean McVay? It was stupid. Stupid, stupid, stupid. And it's dumb of me to believe that they were going to get this thing figured out. Definitely. I thought the Rams were good. I was clearly mistaken. The Rams are a fraud. Yeah. They're a bad football team that masqueraded as a good one for yep. the, for a couple of weeks. Their wins were fraudulent win on the road at S- Seattle. Weird stuff happens in week one. And then they beat a bad Colts team that was dealing with injuries. Yeah. Other than that this year, pff, pff, that's on me, man. That's on me. I can't blame them. That's on me for for believing in something that was completely nonsense. Absolutely. That is a big old goose egg for three for old BK once (laughs) again. All right, T-Bone, I'm sure things went better for you, though. You took a team that was going from the Midwest to the East Coast, smash mouth football, a team that's going up from a dome, playing in the East Coast, 20 miles an hour win. I'm sure this is going to go well. I like the Lions plus three at (laughs) the Baltimore Ravens. I think the Lions are a better football team. Jackson can't find anyone. Looking to take off and run. Bounces away. Still surveying. Still alive, throwing an end zone caught for the touchdown. Nice. Nelson Aguilar. Yeah, Nelson Aguilar just beat the Detroit Lions. That was a shellacking, boys. I got nothing to say, but um, I'm just glad I didn't take that pick because I was so confident, like going into the game, that Detroit was going to wipe the floor with Baltimore. Then I said, "Well, I, make I, something else." I even agree with Alex. I was like, "Man, this Baltimore offense not as good as as, as we thought it was going to be." And then, still you know, don't buy into woke it. Woke up against Detroit. Still don't buy into it. Fine. Don't ever bet on Jared Goff on the road outside of a dome. Yeah, fair. Just don't do it. Fair. That's the lesson to be learned here. If they're going into a cold environment or a windy environment that's outdoors, not at home, don't bet on them. We should make like a website of all of our like bets for the weekend of like things don't to do. Don't do. All right. So uh, that was that was T Bone's two point play. His three point play though still out there. Oh, this was a big spread. He could end up getting a dominant lead in our league. At this point, I've got six. Alex has five. T-Bone's at six. Three-point play. What do you got? My three-point play, I'm going to stick in college football. I'm going with Oklahoma minus okay. 19 versus UCF. Hot damn. And Plumley keeping it and then throwing it. Right. It's caught at the 40. Baker running away from all the Sooners. It's an 86-yard touchdown pass that totally fooled OU. T-Bone, what do I always tell you? You say to avoid big spreads. Now, what's not in that cut that I cut out was I went, I thought about Michigan, but because it's a rivalry game against Michigan State, I don't know if they covered. They shellacked Michigan State. Never pick big spreads. No, don't listen to that. Look, Oklahoma should have showed up, taking care of business. Shoulda, woulda, coulda. Good teams win, great teams cover. That's right.
there was a point in time after that play where I was like, ooh, T-Bone's in trouble, not just in terms of the cover. Yeah. His well, team yeah. might flat out lose. Yeah. And they still had an opportunity to be able to come in, come back in that one. They just didn't get the two-point conversion uh, with about a minute and a half left in the game. Ended up being the, the deciding factor there. But, man, Oklahoma... I think they're going to end up losing at some point this year. I don't know if it's at Kansas. I don't know if it's at BYU, but Oklahoma at Oklahoma State is possible. This team is is just okay. I think that we all got a little out over our skis whenever they went up against Texas and beat Texas, and I think we have now seen that Texas maybe not quite as good as what we were expecting them to be given the fact that they really struggled this week to be able to take care of business against Houston. Um, Oklahoma is a team to keep an eye on. They are on upset alert basically every single week because of the style that they play. Really good quarterback. Love their quarterback. Gabriel's great. Otherwise, though, they've they've got some serious. Yeah, to I thought this would be a game that they would really take care of business. I should, especially because UCF got blown out by Kansas against their backup quarterback. And I remember, I remembered that game in the back of my head, and I went, "They're getting blown out by mm-hmm. Kansas's backup. They're going against a potential college football playoff team. Easy cover." I don't know what the odds would have been if you had put down a ten dollar parlay by just mm. fading our picks. Oh man, we really should like put that together. On Fridays of sure. like what a parlay would look like if you if fade you win us. or if you lose yeah. with us, yeah, I I think we should probably go ahead and do that because well, that has we're to never going to repeat this performance. Oh, man. see what did I say about demonstrative words? Well, come on, we can't all go zero and nine. Oh, surely, zero for seven, zero <laughs> yeah. for seven against the spread. Do you know how hard that is? Yeah, I mean, hard. I had some of these last year, but that was just me. That was yeah. just my kiss of death to the mm. games. You guys joining in on the fray, man, that's not good. It's starting to bleed over into your work. So, wow, but that's back to back weeks that I've picked a game that you've also picked, and I feel like it's it's like a disease. It's when you get sneezed on, you're going to get whatever they got immediately. So next week things are going to be interesting. Final week of this month before the pick'em punishment. I've got six points. T Bone has six points. Alex has th- uh, five points. Three point. Get the hell out of here. <laughs> so going into next week, everything very much still up in the air. So. Be sure to stay tuned on Friday as we make our picks going into the weekend. Coming up next, is Zach really working different. his way into the all-time postseason performer oh, list? Good. It sure seems like he might be. We'll talk about it next year on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Awesome. Prove it. Major League Baseball pitchers with 60 career postseason innings, at least a strikeout per inning, and a sub one whip with an ERA below 2.5. Some might say he whipped it good. Bob Gibson. Zach Wheeler. That's the end of the list. Anytime you're on a list and the name includes yours and Bob Gibson, you know you're doing something pretty darn well. You know, in this segment, we could be saying Cardinals pitcher Zach Wheeler. It could be, but they decided not to. It was the whole thing where it was half of a season and then they weren't going to give him $125 million. they thought Harrison Bader was going to be a Hall of Famer. Alongside Alex and T-Bone on BK, Alex, Zach Wheeler is working his way onto the all-time postseason performer list. If you're just looking at the way that he's performed in the playoffs since 2010, man, you're talking about the like of Strasburg, Mad Bum, Lester, Evaldi, Cole, Bueller, um, Chris Carpenter. Those are some of the guys that are kind of in the same range as what he has done so far. 
And really the only guys that have been flat out better than Wheeler since 2010 in the postseason, if you're looking at big time innings, really low ERA, it's really just Strasburg and Madbum. I think you can start talking about Zach Wheeler being in that mix. I don't think anybody reasonably saw this coming whenever he signed with Philadelphia. He was a really good pitcher. He wasn't considered to be an ace among aces. T-Bone, if I asked you today, how many pitchers, if you were trying to win for the next five years, how many pitchers would you be taking right now over Zach Wheeler in your rotation? I think I came to the number of just two ahead of him, and I think Garrett Cole's number one, and then I think number two, for me at least, would be Spencer Strider. Now, his his stuff is so dominant, that's probably why I would do it. I know he had a high ERA this year, and he doesn't eat innings, but I mean, he struck out 281 batters this year. Like He's insane with his stuff, and he's still pretty young. I think Wheeler's third, though. I mean, you look at what Wheeler's done over the the length of his career here in Philadelphia. That dude is a stud. And I know like he dealt with injuries a little bit last year, but when he's healthy, man, he is legitimately a dominant pitcher, and he brings his game to the next level in the postseason. So I think I would probably put him at third because I know like people go, well, what about Verlander? Well, Verlander's 40, and he probably doesn't have five more years left in his career. And otherwise, it's tough. Like Even guys with like stuff like Blake Snell, what does he look like in five years? Eh, it's kind of why we're skeptical of signing him. There's not a lot of guys I think that profile better than Wheeler in five years. Wheeler has everything you're looking for. Yeah. Everything. He's got the strikeout stuff. He gets deep into games over the last uh, three seasons. He's fifth in the league in innings. The only guys that have more than him are Alcantara, Cole, Nola, and Burns. Like, he has everything you could ask for and then some. Yeah, I. Uh, he's, uh, he's as dominant as you can ask. And what's he, 31, 32 years old? Like, we're looking at a guy who still has three to five years of dominant stuff. Um, He's in my top five. Like, there's the the two guys you brought up, absolutely. And, of course, you're projecting, which is the hard part. But, like, health aside, when they return, you look at, like, the Shohei's or the the McClanahan's with the Tampa Bay Rays. But the fact that we're talking about him and we're trying to come up with guys that make sense, here's the thing about the Blake Snells, certain other guys – I haven't seen him in the postseason. Snell, we've seen a while ago. Certain guys we haven't even seen in the postseason or at least deep into the postseason. And if I haven't seen you now, what do you think it's going to look like in five years? Whereas Zach Wheeler, like now we're getting repeated looks of a guy who every year he's on the big stage seems to get better the deeper he goes into a series. I think he's got the potential to be a Hall of Famer. Based on what we've seen from him over the last few seasons, it's really hard to get into the Hall of Fame now as a pitcher, but postseason success especially if they win it all this year that'll be back-to-back years where he was the driving force for that team at least pitching wise to be able to get there and you look at what he's doing in terms of wins above replacement which is another advanced number that a lot of people are going to be looking at man he leads all major league starters with wins above replacement over the last three seasons that's pretty damn dominant he's been the guy that you can point to like if you were asking me today who are you building your rotation around you get anybody for the next three years he might be at the top of the list I mean, you can make a case certainly for Garrett Cole. If you're taking into account contracts, which is a really good one for Zach Wheeler, it might be Zach Wheeler right now over anybody else because he's proven in the regular season. He gets you deep into games. He's a dominant performer once we get to the postseason. That dude is the the equivalent of like a yesteryear ace. That's a dude that you could put onto a poster of a game one or a game seven of a World Series matchup in, you know, 2003 and he would fit the criteria of what those guys were doing back then so 
it's a throwback type of a performer. He's been awesome to watch so far in the postseason. And tonight we get to watch his sidekick in Aaron Nola once again oh, on the mound for Aaron the Philadelphia Nola. Phillies. Call, you just called him Robin to his Batman. Aaron, you're our exactly Batman here in St. Louis. Yeah, 100%. You're our Dark Knight. Come be that guy for us, please. Please, please, Aaron. Coming up next, we'll hit the rewind here on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Be sure to check it out on the podcast page, 101ESPN.com. The free 101 ESPN app is where you go to find it. It's all presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers. If you prefer, you can check us out on YouTube. Shows are always available after we are done here. You can always watch us live as well. 101 ESPN STL is where you go to on YouTube to find us and watch us live or afterwards. The studio cams are powered by the Air Alliance team. Alex, let's finish up by getting another thought or two in on the Missouri Tigers, who get a big win over the weekend against South Carolina. Carolina T-Bone was in attendance to see the Tigers, the the real threat here locally in terms of college football. Um, glad to see him showing his allegiance. Well, he was we really in attendance that. hoping to see a Mizzou yeah, loss. for a homecoming game. He was going back home. We understand. I get it, man. I tried not to cheer too loud when South Carolina kicked field goals, but... Yeah. <laughs> Mizzou now has a top 25 offense and defense, according to some of the more advanced nerdy numbers. Alex, where are you at on this team? What can they do this year? I'm, I'm all aboard the win out train and uh georgia of course is the scariest part of this but as we talked about earlier i i really think you're going to go into this georgia game with a better opportunity to win than what most people are going to be giving them because it's georgia and georgia's the dominant force but i think mizzou's offense is the dominant force going into that game and frankly it's going to come down to can mizzou get some stops uh but if you walk away with a victory against georgia i don't see a loss up until the sec championship game and frankly we might see what would you say Mizzou versus LSU, Mizzou versus Georgia probably is the SEC championship game. Uh, it can be Georgia, oh, same division, make, yeah. but probably LSU, possibly Bama. just depends yeah. on who wins that game a couple of weeks from now. And by the way, Missouri's going to be playing Georgia at 2.30 on CBS. That was just announced a little bit earlier today. They'll get the, the midday slot with CBS. Georgia, or Alabama versus LSU will be the nightcap oh, in that good. one. Good. Which is awesome. We yeah. did not want to see Georgia last, down in Athens as a night game against Mizzou. We didn't need that. Last time we played Georgia in the evening, it was a heartbreaker. It was. It sure was. Last year in Columbia. I, I think you're right, Alex. I would say at this point, your expectation as a Mizzou fan should be 10-2. Yeah. That's the expectation. If you lose against Tennessee, Florida, or Arkansas, you didn't take care of business. You're a better team than those three teams. I truly believe that. I think you are a more complete team than any of those that I just mentioned. And you're going to have, you know, 15, 20% chance to go down to Georgia and be able to win that game. Some Mizzou fans will probably hear that and say, BK, you're taking them too lightly. I'm not. That's a really good chance to beat an excellent team in Georgia. I'm lower on them than most. They're still really damn good, man. And you're going into what is going to be an incredibly hostile environment. It's going to be a tough road game for you. But if you can win one out of every five times you play that team, hey, man. Puncher shot. Let's see what you got coming out of the bye week. Really good place for Missouri to be. Best start for them since 2013. Chance to win double-digit games for the first time since then as well. For Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendrickson, I'm Brandon Kiley. Certainly plenty more talk to have when it comes to Aaron Nola tomorrow, as you guys have come to expect from us here on BK and Ferrario. 
You've been listening to the BK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN.